stupid. He comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone. Graham Rahal grabbed the lead. Twice. Don't we all know about it? Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be the smuggest related IndyCar podcast we've ever recorded on this show. I'm Andre Harrison, and welcome to episode 89 of Motorsport 101. And uh, God, we're 11 away from 100. That's that's kind of ridiculous to even suggest at this point. But here we are, and for the first time in I think a good three weeks, we've got a full house on the gentleman on the show, ladies and gentlemen. We have Ryan King here. Hello, sir. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. Not so glad about my fantasy IndyCar team, but glad to be here. I'm glad he mentioned it first before, but I'm glad that King gave himself the self-ether before we did. More on that later. But uh, also, making his welcome return to the podcast, Mr. RJ O'Connell. Hello, sir. Howdy, everybody. Um, Nashville tied Pittsburgh in the Stanley Cup Finals last night as uh, as of June the 6th. Um, Nashville has a wonderful party atmosphere, uh, for all of their games, which is just delightful. It is the talk of all the sports world. Um, what else is going on? Wipeout Omega Collection is out, and that's really awesome. Formula Fusion is out, and that's really awesome. I can't play either of those. The only thing that I am salty about is that they are also making a live-action Cowboy Bebop remake, and I am very, very understandably hesitant because there has never really been a good live adapta- live action adaptation of any beloved anime series of yesteryear. See Ghost in the Shell starring Charlotte Johansson for more information. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, let's not get into that. Um, I'm yeah, telling maybe- you, y'all, the, the last proposal for live action Cowboy Bebop that had Keanu Reeves as Spike Spiegel and Megan Fox as Faye Valentine, yeah, that sounds really, really amazing by comparison. Yeah, I'll <laughs> be real. That sounds amazing by comparison. Like, I still remember, like, talking about F1 before, before, like, Rush even was announced, there was, you know, plans for another F1 movie about, uh, about uh, the title fight between Phil Hill and Wolfgang Guan Trips that was going to star um, Toby Maguire as Phil Hill. Huh? What? <laughs> Who? Huh? What? Uh, Spider Man as Phil Hill. Yes. I mean, yes. I, guess, I guess that sounds about right. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the 32 year old actor playing 19 year old Peter Parker, of course. Um. It's like Hilary Duff and like all, all those all those kids animes, all those kids animated shows you get on these days are voiced by really old people. Well, well, anyway, I, I like my opinions to be known. Tom McGuire still best Spider Man. That's I mean, really not, not saying much at this point, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I want to. I wanted to give Andrew Garfield a chance. I don't think he's that terrible. Yeah, he he wasn't that bad. He just ended up in terrible movies. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. I think Garfield was a fine Spider-Man. It was just a badly written movie, um, more than anything else. But yeah, anyway, let's, let's, let's take care of some general housekeeping. You can find us on motorsport101.net, and it has all our social media on there, and some blogs too. I've been, I've been very busy writing the last week or so, talking about Fernando Alonso, IndyCar, F1, all that good stuff. 
And uh, yeah, you can check it out there. We'll be talking about, a little bit about that later on in the show as well. So yeah, check that out if you haven't already. We're on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. We are on facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We are on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. And if you want to follow us personally on Twitter, we are at um, at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, as with two Ks, and at RJ O'Connell. And if you really, really like us, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. And there's an exclusive offer going on right now. You can be an early access backer and get early access to both this show and Bike Live just for just three bucks for this month instead of the usual five. So, hey, there's been no better time to be a Patreon backer than right now. Give us your money. No, basically. No, but in all seriousness, if you want to check it out, please do so. Let's get into keeping it 101. And uh, RJ, talk to me about your man's Jensen Button. My man's <laughs> Jensen Button. Okay, so you, why well, I may have mentioned the story like at some point last year that Jensen Button uh, was wanting to do a lot of things after his uh, Formula One full time sabbatical. Of course, you know that he raced Monaco Grand Prix, which didn't go off so well. But he had some other plans in mind. One of those plans that he talked about as far back as September of last year was racing in the Super GT Series um, in at least one round. A full-time deal never happened, but he has a one-off deal in place with Team Mugen, which is pretty awesome. Jensen Button is going to be at the 46th and final Suzuka 1000 kilometers on August 27th, driving for Honda, driving a car that kind of looks like his old British-American racing Honda. It's pretty awesome to see him in the series, racing in a country that is pretty much Jensen's second home at this point. Like, if Jensen is pretty much a dual Japanese and British citizen, um, not only through his relationship with Jessica Michibana, but also through the fact that he has done some pretty awesome things both as a representative of Honda, he's won the Formula One Japanese Grand Prix at Suzuka before. And it's pretty awesome to see him joining up with Mugen, who have quite a bit of Formula One history in their own right. If you'll recall back in the 90s, they were a winning engine supplier with the likes of Liger, with the likes of Jordan. They almost they have more wins than Honda proper does in the last 25 years, if that says anything. Yeah. <laughs> So Jensen Button is going to be doing, uh, he's going to be doing this race and it's a pretty star studded lineup. He's going to reunite with old F1 rivals of yesteryear, like Hecky Kovalainen. Yes, the man he, re- who he replaced in McLaren in 2010. Kovalainen, now the defending, uh, GT500 champion in Super GT. He's going to reunite with Kazuki Nakajima, who is now far, far better than he was the last time we saw him in Formula One. Uh, by far, and we might talk about that some more because we'll cover uh, the Lamont testing for just a bit. But this is uh, this is pretty awesome to see Jensen Button giving sports cars a shot. Uh, he had a pretty good, productive first day of testing on uh, on Tuesday. He was generally within the pace of the front runners in the testing. He was setting laps in the 150s and 151s right out of the bots. His best time was a 151.785. Um, he says he was very happy to be back in Japan and thankful for the opportunity to race. Um, it was one of his uh, co- 
uh, compatriots in Super GT. James Rossiter, former Force India tester and now driving for Lexus Team Toms, um, who pretty much talked Jensen into racing the series after his retirement. He told him all about how there was a lot of exciting side-by-side, wheel-to-wheel action. Um, he enjoys that the fan base is the energy and the fans are a lot different than they are in Formula One. Uh, which definitely comes through. It's going to be a challenge for him. And much like Fernando Alonso at the Indy 500, it's not going to be a cakewalk for Jensen Button to come in and just dominate this race just because he's the first former F1 world champion to race in Super GT. Because think about it is, one, it's already an ultra-competitive series. Two, he's racing with a Honda team that's kind of in their first year back in over a decade, and Honda haven't won a race in over a year uh, three, did we mention it's super competitive and that anybody mm. can win on any, but any given day. And that's before we take into account things like success ballast and competitive balance performance. It, um, it, it's not going to be just a cakewalk just because it's Jensen button. Yeah. I mean, it's not like Lewis Hamilton's going over there, for example, or Fernando Alonso in this case. I mean, Jensen Button was not the best of F1 drivers towards the end of his career anyway. But um, even so, I mean, yeah, like, we'll be getting more into the nature of, you know, F1 and, and driver rosters and, you know, comparisons to other series later on. But uh, he's not going to find it easy. And, if, and I know... You've always hyped up the competitive nature of Super GT, RJ, and then again the success ballast and whatnot and balance of performance. And I mean, how do you personally think we'll get along? Um, I think. See, here's the interesting thing, though, because um, I think a lot of the Honda teams will be extra motivated to win this race, um, especially because Suzuka is pretty much their home track, and this is one of Jensen Button's home track. He stands a very good chance of being competitive for the win. And he's got two very capable co-drivers, one of whom is Hideki Muto, former IndyCar Series Rookie of the Year, who took pole for this race a year ago. Mm. Um, the, the, Hondas, the Hondas are not exactly slow at this stage in the season, but they are snake-bitten with poor reliability at some points. Oh, um, what a surprise. <laughs> the usual Honda stuff. The, <laughs> the usual Honda stuff, though it's still better than what they have in Formula 1 or MotoGP. But that's besides the point. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be, it's obviously going to be a great draw for this race in what will be the final running before it's replaced by the Suzuka 10 hours next year. Um, uh, just having Jensen Button there alone is going to put in a whole lot of fans who otherwise probably wouldn't have gone. And that's before taking into account that Kabuki Kobayashi is also going to be at this event as a guest driver as well. Um, it's, I think he's going to stand a chance of winning. I just don't know if it's a guarantee because, man, that that is a tough field that he has to jump right into. Wow. There's a lot going on here, um, RJ. So, yeah, how, how hyped are you for this then? <laughs> um, pretty. I'm actually really excited for this race. I can't wait to dive in depth into it more as the months come by and the race comes up late in August. Um, it's going to be a very fascinating race with a lot of storylines and not just because it's the final running of this event, but because you have so many key players and so many drivers who could win this event, um, that we'll get to in a bit, in a bit more detail as, as the weeks pass. 
Yeah, looking forward to that and that coverage, obviously, probably through the month of August. Looking forward to that. King, you picked up a new video game this month. Yes, I picked up a new game, well, this month, more like earlier this week. Uh, you mean today, right? Yeah, t- today at the time of recording. I, like, I literally <laughs> just started playing it. Dirt 4 from Codemasters. Uh, the Too Long Didn't Read is, it's a spectacular... I wouldn't say spectacular improvement on Dirt Rally, but compared to Dirt 3, it's a spectacular improvement. That pretty much they got the best of Dirt 3 and the best of Dirt Rally and put it together in a package that is, uh, I would say, a please. I would say pleasing to both you know hardcore Rally fans who were playing since you know the Richard Burns and, and Colin McRae days, and while still putting together. Uh, an experience similar to something that you would see in a Forza Motorsport or a Gran Turismo, but in a rally off-road racing setting. That sounds really great because, like, I, I I I've played every dirt game in the franchise ex- except for Rally, and like the idea of them going full hardcore simulator didn't appeal to me with Dirt Rally. It's a think part of the fun for for Dirt was that they kept it relative, relatively. Simcade, I know some people don't like that term, but that's what the Dirt series pretty much was besides Showdown, which was obviously a lot more arcadey. Um, so the fact they've mixed in the best of both worlds seems really appealing to me. Yeah, there's there's essentially two sets of physics engines. You could get the full simulation from Dirt Rally still, which, again, it doesn't appeal to some because it's incredibly difficult, but once you get it right, it's very it's very rewarding and you feel very satisfied when you finally nail it down. While you could take uh, the gamer route, which is, you, I wouldn't say it's lessened, it, it's it's easier to, you know, maintain the car in a straight line, which for some people... Oh, good! Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but it's still just as punishing if you go off the stage route. Interesting. Which, which I learned the hard way in the tutorial stage, which... Which went was you know perfectly non-eventful usual tutorial up until the end where I hit one of the finishing pylons and rolled my car about six times. Sweet, <laughs> that, that's how you know you've broken it in, King. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say probably the most appealing feature, which I think will actually ease a lot of people into you know wanting to pick the simulation settings, is that they have this training ground or training area based off of, you know, I don't even know if it's fictional. Well, the the Dirtfish Rally Academy. Where yeah. where it's like it's it's, you know, a FIFA X like training arena for you to get a feel of whatever car you want, get a feel of the settings you, you want to use. And also they also have little training mini games for you to, you know, learn how a car handles and how you're supposed to handle it on a rally stage. Very interesting stuff. So, so King, you like it so far? Yes, I I like it so far. The the only like nitpicky things that I kind that are a bit of a down, like a bit of a negative. If you play Dirt Rally, is they no longer have any licensed content from the WRC. So none of the w, none of the World Rally Championship cars, none of the stages. Which to me broke my heart when Monica was no longer. None of the Monte Carlo stages are are in the game, but again, hashtag Goddamn you milestone, <laughs> Goddamn you milestone. Aww. But again, they have 
they have the usual they they have you know modern rally cars still alongside you know the vintage cars from the 60s and 70s and of course the group b monsters of the 1980s ooh like like like, like the trailblazer cars nice yes <laughs> looking so, forward to that so again it's definitely worth picking up if you're even remotely interested in rally racing It'll, it'll it'll ease you in. It'll teach you all the things you need to know if you even want to go up to you know simulation settings. Or again, you could stay in the gamer settings if that's where you you know you just want to pick up the controller and just you know thrash the car around a rally stage. Sounds great. And again, since the game came out today in the United States, the reviews have come out and they have been very positive. From what I've seen, a lots of eights and nines flying around everywhere. Big shout out to listener, friend of the show as well, Christina McGrath, who's actually one of the developers for the game. Uh, so congratulations to all the guys at Cody's for um, for the for the great reviews. I'm looking forward to picking that up myself. I'll Man, report. I'll put my friends. Yeah, I'll be I'll be report I'll be reporting my findings on that most likely on the YouTube channel soon. So keep an eye out for that. But uh, shout out to Chrissy. Congratulations on, on on the great reviews. Hope the game flies off the shelves when it comes out here in the UK on Friday. Um, so looking forward to that as yeah. well. But King, well, yeah, well, yeah. I've got another thing I want to talk about first. Yeah, that's was, that was, that was going to segue into that. Saturday, <laughs> I have Saturday off. Do you have Saturday off? Um, I don't. I'm actually in all day on that one. Oh, Saturday. oh boy. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, ah, oh, King, King versus Dre stream under under four. <laughs> King, do you sure you want this? Yes. Yes, I I, 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 I pretty much embarrassed you on FIFA. Like, you why should... wait for Canelo versus Triple G when you can have Dre versus King in Dirt Four? King, you're about to catch these hands, bro. Again, <laughs> again, there's going to be more black on black crime. Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> but okay, going into my other keeping it 101 story. Uh, in it, I would say an interview between. Uh, F1 reporter at uh, motorsport.com, Adam Cooper, and the people over at Liberty Media, they have, you know, kind of discussed about where they want to take F1 broadcasting in the future, and it's very interesting, and I think a lot of people are going to either appreciate what they're doing, or uh, completely just, you know, bash it off as either a cash grab, or like, why they like destroying formula one quote unquote are we getting the formula one network yes we are getting the formula one network Woohoo! Yay! That, basically oh what they emphasize they want to have essentially uh, a three-prong approach to f1 broadcasting they want to have first for you know they they still don't know how much they want to give away for free in terms of of free broadcasting, but free to air is definitely on their radar. But they're not most likely. You're not going to be able to watch the entire F1 season for free on free to air television. And Bollocks. essentially, mm. it's going to be a three prong where it's almost like a Britain type situation where you have Channel Four broadcasting part of the season for free. You have uh, pay TV where you have um, you know Sky F1 and you have OTT or over the top where there's no broadcaster. It's direct to you from Formula One, the world feed through the internet. Hmm. That that third option sounds really great. It sounds like 
it sounds like everything we've been clamoring for for like years and years and years, especially as on-demand internet media has been on the rise and uh, cable television has been very much on the decline with sport being kind of the last bastion that's holding it together by whatever threads it still has left. Yeah, and basically what Chase Carey said about this was, quote, about the OTT, the the future digital service that they're planning as a premium product. So uh, our most valuable fans are our most passionate fans because we actually have an incredibly important group of passionate fans who love around the world, who love the sport. And basically what he's getting at is that there's, there's there's a market for this and they should actually be trying to, you know, have a service for these fans who don't want ads who don't want to buy a massive cable package just to get formula one. And they could also have, you know, have the ability to get the demographics of fans who watch and better sell, you know, advertising things to advertisers. Cause again, earlier in the article, he emphasized that before Liberty media, for the most part, uh, advertising relationships have been basically how much minutes on the air is, you know, your sign out and the track is going to be there. It could be a completely different relationship if, say, they do market research of people who get the quote-unquote Formula One network and they see, oh, they also like this and this. Let's see if we can get the people who sell the other products our fans like to advertise in Formula One because, you know, there's crossover there. Let's buy some Rolexes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. They can probably realize that hey, a lot of these people who watch the Formula One network don't don't buy Rolexes, but they buy a lot of Coca Cola. Mm, they should buy EPS. <laughs> I don't know. Mm, interesting questions, but um, it sounds promising because like I was I was watching MotoGP's coverage from BT Sport this weekend from Mugello. Oh my god, it was an amazing weekend, by the way. Um, More on that on Bike Live on the Motorsport 101 Network. Yay! Ding! Um, so you see, you can't see, if this was a video podcast, my teeth would be like shining white right now with a winky face on. But um, yeah, basically, um, I was watching that and I was like, I'm getting really sick and tired, basically, of BT Sports coverage. And I was thinking, should I actually just drop the money and get the video pass at this point? So I'm already considering, like, willing to, am I willing to drop like 100 euros for the season? so I can watch every MotoGP race on the world feed via the internet rather than, you know, having to spend the £20 a month to get BT Sport instead. So I get it. Like, I probably would be a consumer to this F1 network if it came down to it because, well, we all know how I feel about Sky Sports F1. I think we know how most people feel about Sky Sports F1 and their coverage sometimes. It's the Lewis Hamilton network. But in any case... Yeah, I, 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 I would be all for a world feed on demand service on those sorts of lines. So that's promising. Any, any other juicy details there, King? That they did give a timetable to when this service could possibly be in place. Go on. That they recently concluded an agreement with uh, Canal Plus, the the F1 broadcaster in France. France, yeah. And they already, you know, accounted like. They no longer have the, like, the digital rights can be used by Formula One Broadcasting now. And Chase Carey has said, in two or three years, we'll probably have over half of the TV agreements coming into some form of renewal. And it happens over a multi-year period. They're either three or four-year contracts. So we'll probably have a fair bit of it launched in the next few years. So within two or three years, uh, 
we could be having some sort of F1 network available in about half the markets where it's broadcasted. Wow. So that that would be a pretty strong start. So it would be it actually be around the next time the regulations change. So it's yeah, 2020, right? Yeah, so literally it it will literally be a new era for Formula 1. That sounds promising, I guess. Um yeah, like I can't lie to you. I'm not a fan of how F1 is broadcast in the United Kingdom. I mean, I think Channel 4 do an admirable job, but having half the races on 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 free to air TV is frustrating. I mean, I mentioned this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Like the Monaco Grand Prix was was just over a week ago now, and it was the first time Monaco had been on free to air TV in five years. Like the last time it happened, where it was on every TV in the country, was 2012. Um, on the BBC, and that's how long ago was well, since since one of the biggest races that F1 has on the calendar in terms of popularity was on free to air, and like free to air is the backbone. Like you're never going to get the amount of TV coverage you'll get on a pay TV network. It's just not going to happen, no matter how big or how much of a juggernaut Sky Sports becomes. Um, they're a football network first, more than an F1 network. And God, I mean, did you see King the other day? They paid they paid five billion for the Premier League rights. Yes, yes, I saw that, and that is... Yeah. I think I think part of Liberty Media's understanding is that they know that they can't get football money, and they know no. that they have a market of fans where they, where they know they can't get that amount of money, but they have a reliable income that's going to be there forever, just sitting online waiting for them. That's a good point. And yeah, I, think, and... I think that's the, like, the... Do I dare say the Vince McMahon idea when it comes to having a digital network that you know you're never going to hit those big numbers again, but you know you have that reliable source of revenue just waiting for you to be there forever. Yeah, that guaranteed money. Um, yeah, I, I hear you. So yeah, I, I I get it. I do get it. I I, I like the idea of an over the top works sort of service, direct world feed and. You know all that, so I'm, I'm here for it. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to look forward to where that's concerned. I just hope they can iron out all the logistics and find a way to make it work. And the price point is going to be very interesting on that as well. Seeing what sort of money we're going to be it's talking be here. The price point and also who's going to be the world feed broadcasters? Like who are they going to hire to do their? Like are they going to like you know mail it out to a national broadcaster like dare I say Sky F1 or are they <sighs> going to get their own broadcast team together and who do they get for their own broadcast team? Just just lift off the entire Formula E team at this point. <laughs> like just 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 get Nicky Shields as main anchor and then you can have Jack Nichols and Dario Franchitti in the commentary box. Everything will be perfect. <laughs> Sorted. Problem solved. Um I'm your but leader. I think on the other <laughs> end of things, it does make things a bit brighter in terms of broadcasting. Because if Formula One gets their own broadcasting like company together, they have to hire a bunch more people, usually from companies that already exist. So they have to hire new people as well, and you know more broadcasting jobs for everyone. Which I think for us who kind of want to break into this is a good. Can thing. I just can I cut in and add one more point to uh, what to Dre's point about what the Formula One broadcast team should look like? Because yeah. I know that ESPN and ABC are making so many drastic talent cuts, and Ugh. they're pretty much divesting all of their motorsport properties by this point. Get Marty Smith, um, 
the the pit lane reporter for the Indianapolis 500 and also yes. college football. Get him to pretty much do the same thing for Formula One and just stand in a crowd of rowdy Formula One fans. <laughs> yeah, just just the stick money him. prints itself. Yeah, stick him in a stick him in a Tafosi stand and see what happens. Boys, <laughs> I'm down here, at Monaco Grand Prix, the High Rollers Casino. These boys are dropping fifty thousand dollars a game on the roulette wheel. They are absolutely pumped here tonight. Okay, note note to William Hill, like. Get 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 like five shops in Monaco going, please. I'll run one of them. Imagine the tip. Imagine the tip money. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Did, did we? Did y'all talk about the, uh, the 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 bill at the Monaco Casino last week? We did. Yes, we did. Oh my god! Oh my yes, god. the one hundred thousand dollar champagne bottle that's as big as I am. <laughs> <laughs> We did talk about that last week. To so check that out, we did talk about it on last week's show. It was hilarious. Seeing like, uh, seeing them spend like 7,000 euros on cigarettes and a $115,000 bottle of, 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 of champagne. Because, hey, how how, like, how rich have you got to be so when you, when you can spend 100 grand on a bottle of champagne and it's no big deal? That's what I like to call fuck you money, basically, yeah. at this point. Um, yeah, like, we could pay you this much to make you go away, basically. At this point, just hire dead shots or something. Like uh, my, my only one rule for for an F one World Feed broadcast theme: please be multinational. That's all I ask for. Please be multinational. Sure. Just don't hire a bunch of Brits, please. <laughs> yes, yes. Just don't hire only British people. Because honestly, I've been sick to death of, of F one broadcast being only British hires now, pretty much all the way through. It's at least, at least BT Sport got it right and didn't like. I would say it could be more multinational on BT Sport, but at least they tried. They got Colin Edwards. He's yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. America's Colin Edwards. <laughs> America's Colin Edwards. The Texas Tornado himself. Because I'm pretty uh, sure Dominic Valsak, he's just sitting there, just like, I'm just waiting, guys. Like, I know. Please. <laughs> yeah, please, <laughs> God. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Dre, what happened in the Champions League? Real Madrid wins, lol. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I wanted to talk about this a little bit, but like football's basically going out of control. And I, I was, I was, sitting, I was sitting in my bookies on Saturday last, like last week, watching the Champions League final on my phone because uh, BT Sport was streaming the game live on YouTube for the world. Nice one, BT Sport. Much appreciated. My shop's got Wi-Fi now, so that's really helpful. Um, so I was just sitting there taking some bets and watching the game and. Like, it's amazing. Like, Real Madrid has become, like, a legitimate footballing dynasty overnight. It's it's weird to me. Like, I was, I was sitting down and thinking about this the other day. And I did a little bit of research. Like, Real Madrid last won the Champions League in 2003. Like, like there, was, there was a most prolific former big title. Back in the Galacticos era, it was 2003. They hadn't even made a final again in 12 years and then now all of a sudden they have won three of the last four and they are the first team in the modern era to win back-to-back Champions League titles led by Cristiano Ronaldo who had pretty much one of the great European championship runs this year. I think he scored 12 goals in the entire tournament which is just ludicrous stuff. Um, his 600th um, goal for club and country um as well during that game as well um as well as i think 400 goals for real madrid as a club in the semi-final against atletico who've now made like 
semi-finals on four out of the last five years and still not won a major title. Simeone must be putting out his very well-greased hair at this point. Um, but I was watching the final. And what amazes me about it is that, like, there is nothing that special about this Real Madrid team on the pitch when they play. It's like they don't dominate possession like the Barcelona teams of old do. They don't knock it around the opponent's final third waiting for an opening all day. Like, they're not particularly special on the counter-attack. They're not magnificent tactically or anything like that. Because Zinedine Zidane, you know, is managing their club now. They're obviously the former Real Madrid legend and uh, you know, footballing legend and World Cup winner from 98. is now their manager, for those that don't know. And, um, like, he inherited the job two years ago, and he's won almost everything you can win already as a coach, um, which is just nuts in just two years of professional management. Um and yet, again, there's, like on the pitch, they are not all that special. And yet, they've probably amassed like the greatest squad of 23 footballers ever assembled. It's it's nuts. Like you've got Ronaldo, you've got Benzema, you've got Gareth Bale, who was relatively quiet during this season, you know, battling with injury and whatnot. And Bale is a top 10 player in the world when he's healthy as it is. Casemiro had a breakthrough season. Isco had a breakthrough season. They had Hamas Rodriguez in there, and he's probably leaving at the end of the season because he was getting no game time, which is nuts given that Hamas Rodriguez was probably like the best player of the 2014 World Cup just two years ago. Who inspired the worst newspaper pun ever? Go on. <laughs> um, I believe I don't remember which newspaper it was, but they printed the headline, The name is Bond. Hamas Rodriguez. <laughs> I remember that now. That was amazingly bad. That was the worst pun of all time. And yet there it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like Rodriguez was like the World Cup MVP for Colombia in 2014. Scored like six goals in five games and, you know, was the breakout star of tournament. Real Madrid bought him for like 63 million and then pretty much benched him for Luka Modric. Weird how that one turned out. And again, Modric, amazing player. Tony Kroos, amazing player. A massive darts fan. That's one for you there, Roger. Um, yeah. Tony Kroos, massive darts guy. Um, and of course, you've got the defense. You've got Sergio Ramos, who, by the way, is a complete scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> like, the way he dived and then rolled around in pain to get Quadrado sent off was just embarrassing to football on every level. This is the guy that once used Manchester. Just United as a scapegoat to get himself a new contract because Ramos is a dick, basically. Um, him, Pepe, who has a flawless reputation when it comes to football, um, never does anything controversial ever. And yeah, like Marcello and Carvajal are great fullbacks, and it's it's an incredible squad. I've not even mentioned guys like Avaro Morata, who could be going at the end of the season for like 50 mil, even though he's like a backup to Kareem Benzema. It's like it is an incredible squad they've put together, and like, I do feel bad, which I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, I feel bad for my brother Ryan's Juventus team, because my brother Ryan is a huge Juventus fan, and it's the second time he's made the final in three years, and they were desperate to get Buffon a Champions League winner's medal, their legendary keeper, Gigi Buffon, and it just didn't quite happen for him again, and they, they crumbled in the second half, and it was very sad, because Buffon is a very nice man, and he is a bona fide footballing legend. He's like Andrea Paolo King, like, it's like, everybody just loves him now, for like, cult reasons. It's kind of nuts, but, um, like, King, do you, do, you, do, you see, do you see any of the final? 
Uh, only the goals on Twitter. Only the goals on Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Manzukic scored an absolute belter. Like, oh, it's... my God, yeah. I saw that. That is one of the great tournament final goals. Like, a cross comes into the box. It comes to Higaini. He knocks it forward for Dybala. He knocks it back. And Manzukic, moving backwards about 15 yards out from goal, lobs it over his head, and it beats Kendall Navas, who was standing on the goal line. It is a ridiculous goal. With some saying it's up there with Zidane's legendary volley from 2002 um, against Bayer Leverkusen in that final. But, uh, my God, that Mandzukic goal was something special. I do feel bad for Buffon because, I mean, Buffon netting two goals that were blatant deflections as well. Like, the, the first Ronaldo goal early on and, like, the Casemiro goal from distance took t- two deflections on the way in. I mean, it just wasn't meant to be for Juventus on this one, and I felt kind of bad for him. But I had to mention that, like, it's kind of crazy that for all the talk about football being competitive and, you know, it's hard to be good in the Champions League consistently for a long time. Real Madrid's won three of the last four, and they've, yeah. they've, got, they've won back-to-back Champions Leagues for the first time in this era. And Ronaldo is probably going to win his fifth Ballon d'Or in January. And I, I, that's think gonna it, be I think that's largely down to the, like, the economics in Spanish football about, like, Pretty much until this season, all the clubs had to make their own TV contracts. So obviously, two clubs got vastly, vastly more money than everyone else. Who could they possibly be, King? Um, um, Real Madrid and uh, Barcelona, unexpectedly. Uh, who, who guessed, right? Never would have guessed. Like, what do you mean, Villarreal didn't make money? <laughs> like this year, it's they they decided to end the practice of teams getting their own TV contracts, so um, it was done collectively, which it's helped, but obviously by the results, didn't help much. Like, I still have, I have a rundown of the payouts for this year, where Barcelona got the most, 150 million euros, um, Real Madrid got 148 million euros, and in third place, you have Atletico Madrid with 116 million euros. That's just the drop-off between second and third in the more equal system. King, that makes the Dodgers TV deal in the States look like chump change. (laughs) Good. Brief. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And for what it's worth, compared to the Premier League, Sunderland got ninety-three million pounds in TV money this year, and they finished the bottom of the Premier League. Yeah, that that's they why... got more money than Leicester. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's why. Um, that's one of the biggest reasons why, like, Premier League clubs aren't competitive in Europe because they don't, they're not in a super a super club league. It's fairly competitively balanced. So when a balanced out club when a league when a club from a balanced out league goes into pretty much a league with only super clubs you're gonna struggle yeah it's it's kind of a problem and yeah like i said like the the amount of money that's going around in the premier league is ridiculous they're talking about romano lukaku leaving everything to go back to chelsea and they're talking about it could be a 100 million pound deal and it's just like when did football become baseball Um, like this is tv 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 TV, like I said, like like I think it was Chelsea made the most. Like when it comes to combined TV and prize money, like Chelsea made like a hundred and twelve million pounds in TV money this season, which is just oh. bonkers. That is ridiculous. Like Sunderland that got relegated into the Championship and was bottom of the Premier League this year got more money than Real Madrid for winning the biggest tournament in club football. 
Madrid made 80 million in TV money by making the Champions League final and winning it. Like, do, like, do we even talk about, like, just the starkness between this and Formula One, where I don't even think, like, the teams in this, in, you know, the bottom half of Formula One even made, like, a fraction of that. VJ Malia said it on Twitter. It's like, he said, like, 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 like Sunderland made more money than Force India did as a Formula One team last season. Uh, Force India was fourth in the Constructors' yeah, Championship like, last year. Oh, if I recall correctly, uh, Force India got like uh, 60 million pounds for finishing in fourth place. Yeah. 60 million. <laughs> for finishing in fourth place in the World Constructors' Championship. Yeah, football money is getting ridiculous. But uh, yeah, congrats to Real Madrid on winning another Champions League title. I can't stand their fan base for the life of me. They get on my goddamn nerves. But congratulations to them. Uh, they, it helps when you've got like the world's biggest athletic freak of a footballer, the LeBron James of football, basically, on your team. It kind of helps. Um, even though the real LeBron's probably going to get swept out of the NBA Finals. So, hey, who cares, right? Yeah, who cares? Uh, oh, boy. Well, I mean, it almost happened, but, you know, things happened last time out. It, we'll see. Okay, so yeah, for, Formula One, they give out their prize money in U.S. dollars, and Forest India got $72 million. <sighs> I made that about 55 mil. I just go, I just, I just despair. So much despair. Football money, you guys. Football money. When when 18-year-old Kylian Mbappe is talked about as a 120 million euro player. I just go nuts. I just go like, wh- like, when did the when did the football market just spiral out of control? And then you realize Premier League TV money. That's how, basically. Premier League TV money, the Champions League becoming, you know, the Champions League. It helps, um, and like it's crazy. I was watching the Championship playoff on like the second tier of English football the other day. I think it was Huddersfield versus. Um, who was it now? I'm gonna, I think it was Huddersfield versus Reading um, in the championship playoff final. And like we're talking about, that is now a £200 million game. It's the richest game in football because the winner, they reckon a Premier League spot is worth £200 million to the club that gets yeah. promoted. Like, it's I bonkers. Think, yeah, the gap between the championship and the Premier League is huge. Probably the only gap that's bigger is the gap between GP, Formula 2 now and, and Formula 1. Because, you know, reading up about it, um, back when it was, I think, 2008 in GP2, so back, like, Formula 1 was about to start sinking. um, This is the year where Giorgio Pantano beat Bruno Senna and Romain Grosjean much to some people's dismay. Yeah. (laughs) So, I believe, in total, every, like, GP2 as a whole brought in in TV money $35 million. Oh. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah. They, it was, uh, most of the team owners agree that the money that they got from drivers paying to drive for their teams was about as equal to TV money. So they got $35 million from the drivers participating and $35 million from TV. Good grief. Jesus. <laughs> not ideal. Not ideal. No, not ideal at all. Ah, uh, but God. 
More on that in future podcasts when I find out Lukaku's gone back to Chelsea for a world record for you. Most likely. Suck it, Paul Pogba, etc. And following hot takes. That'll be fun. Um, but yeah, let's, let's take a breather. Let's, and when we come back, we will get into the IndyCar Duel in Detroit. It's time for the part of the show where we have to act really smug because, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in the history of the duel in Detroit, there was a double race winner. And his name was Graham Stake and Shake Rayham. Sorry, Ray Hall. Uh, <laughs> um, and he grabbed the lead on both occasions and ran with it. But King, like this was... This was Graham's weekend, all pretty much all the way through. It was bonkers. Yeah, it was it was a masterclass, and like shockingly enough, he called it like the Friday. He called it. Yeah, he pretty much called it. He said it like if I qualify up front, I'm gonna run. I'm gonna be like run away with this. And I was like, oh god, Ray Hall's getting smug again, and he, he actually backed it up. It's like, like I love I love that like all of the IndyCar field on Twitter like the Monday afterwards was like, yeah, well. Graham showed us, didn't he? Um, it was like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, I remember Alex Rossi was like, yeah, you can talk, like, like, you can trash talk if you can back it up. And yeah, like, they had, there, there was nothing you could say. It was just a matter of whooping. Um, arse whoopings were handed out by Graham Rahal left and right. He, he was dominant in, in both races. Nobody had an answer for him at all. It was, it was insane. And again, more power to him because, like, Rahal has really struggled this season. Um, he's not had a good time of it, but then all of a sudden, just like that, one really big weekend, and he's back in the top four. <laughs> yeah, it just like one weekend for him to get two race wins on the trot, and damn, he's, he's... and to qualify well. Like Saturday, where there was that whole kerfuffle because Elio Castroneves thought he had the pole position, and uh, well, then slowed down enough for a yellow flag and had that demoted down a second which is still fine but come race day he didn't really have an answer for graham ray hall he didn't have an answer for graham day two graham doesn't qualify in pole but still qualifies in the front row most importantly and is still able to during during the course of the race it wasn't even off the line he took the lead during the course of the race he takes the lead and breaks away Breaks away. Yeah, basically, I think he had led more more race laps this weekend than at than the rest of Ray Hall's season put together. He led forty one in race two and then fifty five out of seventy in race one. Yeah, nobody so that comes out to about ninety sits out of one hundred and forty laps at a street course, y'all. That is ridiculous. Beat him down. Um. As, as the, the words ring three, like how many times does Scott Dixon get beaten at a race weekend on pure pace by over six seconds? Like that just doesn't happen under normal circumstances. Yeah, that um, is oof, yeah. this weekend. I don't even know what to compare this weekend to because I like someone did do the double when when double headers were more you know frequent in other tracks. I know I think Dixon did it in 2013, I believe. Yeah, that was the last double header victory was Scott Dixon in 2013. I think it was Toronto when yes, Toronto was, was a double header weekend. 
Yeah, that was the last time anybody has won both races in a in a double weekend, uh, basically. And yeah, Ray Hall in this in the Troops for America 15, gorgeous livery, by the way, um, just completely rolled with it, broke the track record on Saturday, and was then beaten again by Takuma Sato in 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 the quarter five session for race two. More on that in a minute, but. Um, yeah, like Graham Rahal, absolutely dominant. Nobody had an answer for him. He was smug as you like, and he completely deserved it because he made everybody look stupid out there, basically. And that was your big takeaway from Detroit. Let's get into the news. No, I'm joking. Uh, but, but, um, yeah, Graham Rahal, stunning stuff in, in, in race one. A bit more race one stuff. It was a up and down weekend for one of our three drivers we back on this show. And, um, Sadly, it was mine on this occasion. It was James Hinchcliffe. And um, we've got to talk about James for a little bit on this one. Oh, boy. Do we uh, ever. R- race one started um, not great for James, shall we say. No, uh, no it uh, didn't. A, a, like, the, the green flag comes out for the start of the race. Obviously, it's a rolling start. And he spins it at turn two. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, James, what are you doing? <laughs> that brought out a very early caution. But luckily, the, the the strategy of switching to the to the to the, to the black tire and a couple of cautions later on brought him into play, and he finished in third. Hooray! You know, holding off a very hard charging Joseph Newgarden towards the end of race one, but he was able to hold him off. Um, so yeah, James finishing in, in third in race one, and it was going relatively well in race two. Um, not the best qualifying session, but he was running, I think, in eighth place, and then his SPM card dies on him in race two, and it's just like, oh, for God's sake. I mean, One hand gives race, a field signal. Even in race two, he still had that, what, incident in pit lane where he spun out in pit lane. Let's not talk about this, King. Uh, <laughs> I'm not proud of this, okay? I'm not proud of this. But, um, yeah. Hinch. Um... Do you think think that if Hinchcliffe doesn't spin on the first lap that he could potentially have won that first race and beaten Graham Rahal because the speed was there? I just don't know if it was there because he was in such a desperate rush to get it back through the field or the alternate strategy or what? I think it was a I think it was a strategy thing for me. I I don't think anybody would have had an answer around here, but I think like the. The, the Hinch was fast all weekend. He was he was yeah, he was he qualified fifth in in um for race two as well. So the speed was definitely there, but I don't think they wouldn't have run the alternate strategy if Hinchcliffe didn't spin out at turn one anyway. So you know what Indy cars like where sometimes a lottery of cautions will help you and sometimes it will hurt you. And this time I think he was owed one from Long for not from Long Beach but from um from St Pete. So I'm not complaining. What do you make of it, King? I think a lot of people had the speed to catch Ray Hall, but the way Ray Hall ran his race was he only went as fast as he needed to go. Like in the closing stages of the race, I think they made a point where where uh, Alexander Rossi was chasing him down, and Rossi had pretty much used most of his push to pass. Yeah, I think he had like half to a quarter left, and Graham Rahal hadn't even touched any of his push to pass over the entire course of the race. Yeah, he still had all his entire 150-second allocation. That's bonkers. Uh, no need to push this car at all. I'm just going to take it easy and hope somebody can challenge me, and nobody did. Um, race two, it was a little bit more 
edgy to say this. We'll get to that in just a minute. But, uh, like, we've got to talk about Scott Dixon for a little bit, our beloved Scoot. And, um, <coughs> wow. We all talked about his Indianapolis crash last week and just what a massive deal that was. Lord, that was bad. Yeah, uh, to say the least. And uh, turns out he was a little bit more hurt than we thought. So maybe when the adrenaline wore off, we oh, wait, he fractured his goddamn ankle um, in that accident. We were, like, genuinely worried that he wouldn't race at all and this would be his championship over. Nope. He just goes out there and puts in two top six finishes. Because Scott Dixon does Scott Dixon things. Um, only three things in life are certain. Death, taxes, and Scott Dixon consistency. Um, he's just too good at this, guys. Like, he's broken. Like, you're telling me this guy couldn't drive an F1? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Even Graham said it himself. Graham was like, <laughs> like we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but Graham was very complimentary towards certain Scott Dixon in, 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 his, in his race one press conference. And, you know, I remember when Dixon qualified on, on pole for the for the 500, and Ray Hall said on Twitter, like, Scott Dixon is the effing man. <laughs> he said straight up, like, that car no. must have been so loose. <laughs> he said straight up, like, Scott Dixon is the effing man, which just kind of says it all, really. Um, but Dixon's second and sixth in race two with a, with a fractured ankle. The man's an animal. I don't, I don't know how he keeps doing this, but here we are. Um, brilliant stuff from Dixon there again. Um, we talk about a certain man with no catchphrase now. Like we are, we are officially retiring. Not now, Sato on the podcast. We will hang it in the rafters on Mount Nivelt, um next to the Jackie Stewart box. We will, we will rest the not now Sato catchphrase king. I think that was your agreement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, going, we're going to retire it, and um, we're going to replace it with Indy 500 winner Takuma Sato, but. Again, another very good weekend, and all of a sudden, Takuma Sato is right in the thick of the title race. Which yeah, again, he... like, yeah, in the, in this era of competition, it's almost unheard of. Yeah, go on, RJ. You were saying he uh, he finished eighth in race uh, in race one. Uh, in race two, he reset the lap record around Bell Isle Circuit by taking pole position. And while he ended up finishing fourth, he still had a very good race. He led 22 laps early on uh, yeah. before before inevitably being swallowed up by Graham Rahal. Um, I got to say, I, I'm very pleasantly surprised that it's turned out this way for Takuma Sato. At 40 years of age, he's won the Indianapolis 500, and he's kept that momentum going with his best finishes at Detroit um, in his career. Like, Wait, I don't know how long this is going to last, but Takuma Sato emerging as as one of the championship contenders for Andretti Autosport, along with Alexander Rossi, who also had a fifth and a seventh. Did any of us expect those two drivers to be leaving Andretti Autosport's championship charge? Yeah. No, we were probably <laughs> picking Ryan Hunter Ray, and we weren't sure <laughs> if Sato was even a good pick for Andretti Autosport. And I mean, Boy. like... I know we're going to run down the season standings, but Takuma Sato is third in the champion. He's the lead Andretti third. Then we have Rossi in seventh. Then you have to go down the 13th before you hit Hunter Ray. And then you go down, yeah, 13th and 14th is Hunter Ray and Marco Andretti. That's nuts. That is ridiculous. And again, as you said, we weren't sure Sato was the right fit. It seemed like a, like a stocking filler 
in, in it's like one of those bad stock infinite presents you get in your Christmas sock on on, on December twenty fifth, and it's like, oh well, I've got a doorstop. That's nice. And yeah, um, it, it it felt like I still remember when Andretti signed Sato, and they didn't get pick up Carlos Munoz, and it really felt like it was. Um, it was something to get Honda's attention away from Ganassi because it seemed like when Ganassi was shif- shif- <laughs> shifting from Chevrolet to Honda that they were going to be the quote-unquote lead Honda team. Getting to Kumasato seemed like a move to make sure that you know Andretti was seen at least on equal terms to Ganassi. I love that you said like Honda was shipping Chevrolet for a second there. I was like, <laughs> imagine the fan fiction on that. Oh my god! <laughs> so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It seemed like a mascot sort of move for Mandretti to bring into Kuma Sato, but yet, here he is. They've already pretty much got his production worth out of that car in the 26, because Sato is doing a fantastic job right now and looking you know, looking like a real... T- only 11 points off Scott Dixon's championship lead now, yeah, as I, it stands. I know it's a bit too early to say this, but again... No one in the DW12 era has done the double. No one has won the national championship and the Indianapolis 500 in the same season. And before the DW12, it was extremely common. Between 2005 and 2010, six... No, in those six years, five drivers did the double. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah, Can we also... yeah 2005, Dan Weldon, 2006, Sam Hornish Jr., 2007, Dario Ferranchini, 2008, Scott Dixon, and then 2010, Dario again. Can we also talk about how Joseph Newgarden put Penske on his back for most of this weekend with a fourth in race one? He was by far, he set the fastest lap in both races. He got a fourth in race one, a second race two, and that fourth place really stood out at a time where Simon Pagano finished 16th and Will Power finished 18th in a lap down. Yeah. Boy, Pagano and Will Power were rolling back <laughs> the years to 1998. Ooh, and it's like, uh, like even Joseph Newgarden, like, yeah, he got the fourth in race one, but in race two, he finished second, and it seemed like he had the pace to win it. He didn't have the time yeah. to catch Graham, but he had the pace to win. He didn't have the pace to do it. He was on the three-stop strategy opposed to Rahal on the two-stop strategy and was was a second the lap faster than Rahal towards the end of the race until... dot, 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 dramatic pause... Hinchcliffe's engine blows up, which causes a caution. And then in the middle of that caution, Spencer Piggott has a spectacular engine blowout, reminiscent of like 2001 F1 sort of era. When when, when engine went boom, it really went boom. Yep. And um, Spigot, poor, poor Spigot blows up, leaves oil all over the track. That's a red flag situation. So basically the cars are pulled into pit lane, and we were basically promised a two-lap sprint finish. Um, which would have been, or could have been, all sorts of crazy. But it turns out it was completely flat. Hooray for IndyCar! Um, um, I, I, I know people were a bit argumentative about this on Twitter included. Um, I know, like, people like, people were me like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, speaker's engine left forward. Like, listen, I know it wouldn't have been a red flag. Like, would it have been a red flag if, 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 if Spigot's engine didn't blow up? Uh, no, mm. it would not have been a red flag. No. Would it have been race over? Yeah, it, was it, it would have been race over. It would have been race over. You sure about that? Yeah, like, <sighs> uh, it oh, it depends on how fast they would have been able to move Hinch's car out of the way. I think yeah. it would have been pretty they close. Could 
they could do a quick yellow, but I, and maybe get some green flag running. But I don't think there would have been really any shame of running, ending the race under yellow, which is like a diversion from how I used to think uh, many, many years ago, where I thought like, oh, finishing under a yellow flag is absolute trash. That should never ever happen. Every series should have a green right check rule. Um, kind of got overtime, that nice. damn it! Not for Jimmy <laughs> Johnson. Uh, <laughs> I want overtime. <laughs> This is my line in the sand. Overtime sounds cool. No, I'm joking. But um, yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. I think it would have been touch and go. I think they might have been able to squeeze maybe one lap of green running in if it wasn't for that like a green like a green white checker sort of finish. But yeah, the race was red flagged. Graham Rahal was not happy about it. The salt came back out. He said in the pit lane straight up, "That's bullshit, man." <laughs> in, in, in response to the race being red flagged, even though there was nothing he could do about it, and it was a completely valid red flag given Spencer Spencer Piggott's engine was a spectacular blowout, to say the least. And yeah, we had to wait about 15 minutes for the track to be cleaned up and cleared up for the two-lap sprint finish, and uh, apparently next to nothing happened. Um, yeah, Ray Hall was... Newgarden just couldn't get the tyres warmed up. He was not able to mount an attack on Ray Hall, and Ray Hall had a very comfortable... Um, double victory in the end. Um, and uh, apparently, King, off camera, I think Connor Davies said he was taken out by Helio Castro Neves. <laughs> uh, yeah, off camera. Again, like I like I heard about it, obviously didn't see it. Thanks, yeah. ABC. <laughs> and even after getting taken out at the very end, this is still Connor Daly's best finish of the season in 12. Yes. <laughs> I, th- I think Connor felt that this was his quote-unquote one good race this year. Oh, God. And Diddy was running ninth on the restart, and he fell to 12th at the end of the race. Um, so, yeah, sad times for Connor Daly and for Danny Brennan, who was waiting for the one really big Connor Daly performance, and it still hasn't quite come yet. Yeah, like, um, he's still 10 points back of the second lowest guy in the championship. He's still the last of the full-time runners. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll most likely overtake Spencer Pig at the next race. So, ah, uh, well, I guess that's a plus. Also, there was one new appearance from a driver we don't normally see, and it's another F1 established veteran. On say, Esteban Gutierrez making his IndyCar debut with the Dale Coyne team in the 18 car, replacing Sebastian Bourdais, and um, he got he got the rookie treatment, King. Say it's fair to say. Yeah, he, he was definitely <coughs> a rook out there. It, oh, I mean, it's it's hard to see someone. This is probably one of the more difficult street circuits on the IndyCar calendar. It's, you know, these cars are not easy to drive. And he has no experience. The first time stepping, stepping in an IndyCar for him was in practice on Friday. But he said it was really fun, though. He said it was a, yeah. the most fun he's had in a racing car. So... You know, it's like, it's like he enjoyed it at least. Yep, it's almost it like least. he has the potential to be competitive with a team that's actually competitive enough to win races. Who knew? Also, he qualified off the off the back row of both races and finished his second race on the lead lap in 14th. It wasn't a terrible weekend. I mean, Lord knows Dale Coyne Racing has employed worse <laughs> drivers than this. Yes, yes. Definitely. And we, we should note that he did better in both races than Graham Ray Hall's teammate, Oriol Servia. Oh, oh God! <laughs> Servio, didn't he get lapped in race one? Yeah, he got lapped by Graham in race one. 
Oh, and he picked up a drive-through penalty in both races, yes. both for the same pit speed violation. Oh dear, he's shaking my head. So, shall we run down the results of both races, shall we? So, yeah, race one, Graham Rahal winning by just over six seconds from Scott Dixon. James Hinchcliffe himself in third, ahead of Joseph Newgarden in fourth. Alex Rossi continuing his great run of form of another top five finish. If ahead of Michaela Lotion, his best driver of the season in sixth place. Great job from him. Led the lap as well. Well done, Michaela Lotion on that one, ahead of Helio Castroneves, who still has RJ. Magnificent hair. Thank you very much. In seventh, ahead of Indy 500 winner, Takuma Sato. In eighth, I still want to say the catchphrase, but I can't. It's really <laughs> annoying. Um, Ed Jones, yet another very solid rookie showing from Ed Jones in ninth place. Ahead of Spencer Piggott, cracking the top ten in tenth. Maximum Chilton, 11th. Ahead of Snapple Man in 12th. Hunter Ray in 13th. Captain America no longer throwing his mighty shield. Hey, King. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> Sad. Sad times. Carlos Munoz in 14th, Tony Kanan in 15th, reigning champion Simon Pagano in 16th place. Must be delivery. Uh, not the best weekends for Simon. Um, brought it back a little bit in race two, but uh, not so much in race one. The Mullet himself, J.I. Hildebrand in 17th, out of Will Power in 18th, who was lapped. It's a weird, weird time when Will Power is lapped in a street course, um, especially oh, given he won Dark <laughs> Days indeed. Ricky Esteban Gutierrez in 19th ahead of Oriol Servia, who, as, as I mentioned, picked up a uh, drive-through penalty for speeding in the pit lane. And then Charlie Kimball. Um, King, like, permission to lower Charlie Kimball's nickname? Uh, yeah, I would say wait for race two. Wait, he, he, he balances it out. Okay. 21st for Kimball. To be fair, it wasn't his fault. He was clipped um, by Connor Daly's retiring car. Um, Daly had a, had a, I think it was some sort of electrical problem, and Kimball had to take evasive action. He didn't realize for the last minute that Daly's car was slowing down, and, uh, yeah, bad times all round, unfortunately. Bad luck for Connor Daly there, and Charlie Kimball in 21st place. In race two, after the restart, Graham Rahal winning race, race two as well. Joseph Newgarden in second. Will Power making up for lost time in third. Takuma Sato in fourth. Simon Pagano recovers back to fifth place. Dixon sixth, ahead of Rossi. Kimball in eighth, doing just enough to keep his nickname at slightly below average. Helio Castroneves in ninth, still has magnificent hair. Then Canaan, Munoz, Daly's best result of the season in twelfth place. Marco Andretti thirteenth. Esteban Gutierrez fourteenth, ahead of Chilton, Alotion, Hunter Ray, Hildebrand, Servia, Hinchcliffe. Spigot and Ed Jones, who sadly did not finish in that second of a mechanical problem. He was actually... Oh, hang on. Breaking news as we speak. Thanks to Zoe Hamilton well, in the Discord server. for the news section. Yeah, like Dale Coyne has found their replacement for Texas, and it's a return of a certain Frenchman. It's not the one you're thinking. Um, more on that in a minute. But, um, yeah, checking out the series leaderboard as well before we move on. Scott Dixon back in the lead of the championship with a broken freaking ankle uh, on 303 points. He's got an eight-point lead on Helio Castroneves in second. And as mentioned, Takuma Sato in third with 292 now. Uh, just 11 points off the top ahead of Simon Pagano on 278. Joseph Newgarden on 259 in fifth. Graham Rahal, all of a sudden, sixth overall on 251. 
Hell of a weekend from Graham there. And much needed for his overall quite Dude gained season. 107 points in one weekend. Yeah, it helps. It helps a lot. Um, Alexander Rossi in seventh. Will Power in eighth on 233. Tony Kamal on 223. And then James Hinchcliffe rounding out the top 10 on 216. Um, so yeah, that'll just about do it for IndyCar from Detroit this weekend. And it's, it's been an interesting weekend, mostly yeah. because a lot of other F1 drivers, a lot of IndyCar drivers had comments to say. Uh, about a certain Lewis Hamilton. Now, we kind of glossed over this on last week's show. We didn't really have time to get into it, but I insisted we talk about this on this week's show because I've written a lot about this on the website. Um, check out the IndyCar Insecurity Bubble for more on that on the blog if, you, if you're willing to do that. Um, that would be lovely. Um, to tell Dre I sent you, basically. Um, but in that, we were mentioned that I think, I think it was two drivers... I mean, we mentioned Tony Kanaan brought it up at the uh, driver's banquet after the 500 last week, where he, he, he praised Fernando Alonso by saying, yeah, you know, you're humble and you're respectful, and unlike certain other F1 drivers that have made comments this month. And I think the other line was, well, last year he finished second in the two-car championship, which actually made me laugh quite a lot. Um, <laughs> um, Kanaan with no problem throwing that shade. After race one... Um, James Hinchcliffe said, and I quote, it's funny hearing comments about the depth of our field from someone that only has to race three other cars. (laughs) And Graham Rahal took it one stage further when, and during these post-race one victory press conference, where he said, "Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to go to a series and you're only driving against three other cars, basically, and then doubled down on that by saying, I think Scott Dixon could give Lewis Hamilton a run for his money uh, I in think that. Gra- Graham specifically <laughs> said, "I don't know how it would feel to go to a race weekend, and all I have to do to know, all I have to do to know I'd win is just be my teammate." Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got the video right. Here. I'm going to play it now. Yeah, hang on. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what Rahal said. Yeah, and it's oh, it's. It's it's true. It's like a racing risk he is not willing to take. One of them is America's premier. Auto yeah, race. Is, you would take Scott Dixon in a Mercedes all day long, basically. <laughs> Rahal's very complimentary towards Scott Dixon, I have to say. Um, but yeah, this is this has been the, one of the pressing topics of IndyCar the last week or so, and. Like Rahal's comments went viral quite quickly on on Twitter and whatnot, and I got a lot of flack from people on this for saying that. I, I said that Rahal was absolutely right, and and yeah. like a bunch of F one guys did not like me for that for that take. Um, you know who you are, and I'm not going to name names, but um, a lot of shade was thrown my way. Um, Saying that you know, I quote unquote, I got the quote of Ray Hall is an asshole. To which wow. my response was, yeah, somebody said to me, yeah, Ray Hall's an asshole. Like, they get me wrong. Said person is a Lewis Hamilton fan. I'm not going to go any further than that. So I, clearly, some you know, a defensive um, status regarding Lewis Hamilton and uh, the is an embellishment of him as a driver. And listen, there are lots of reasons to dislike Graham Ray Hall. I've made it quite clear on this podcast how I feel about Graham Rahal, but 
questioning questioning the state of F1 and how its drivers and its depth is not as great as it appears on paper is not one of them, in my opinion. And yeah, um, I wrote a lengthy column about this and I said, listen, how can you say that Formula One is so much better than IndyCar for its depth of talent when it's not a meritocracy? And we have complained actively on F1 for years that it is not a meritocracy. I mean, it is only it is only a meritocracy when it comes to you know drivers from marginalized backgrounds trying to break in, um, like women and people of color. In which case, it's totally a meritocracy, and they're only there because they're trying to diverse boost diversity ranks. Hi, Joe Sayward, how are you doing? Ugh, that asshole. Now, even if you look at, look at it from the opposite end of the spectrum, when you look at guys who competed in either kart or IndyCar and then move over to Formula One, you can't say that the depth of field is not there. You have Jacques Villeneuve and Juan Pablo Montoya spending it, spending some time at least in kart, then going over to F1, getting put in competitive cars, and showing that they're just as good as anyone else in Formula One. And it's even, much yeah. And even you could put in Sebastian Bourdais in his time at Toro Rosso. He was pretty much wheel-to-wheel with Vettel for most of the year. Yeah, you had guys like Alex Zanardi, who didn't have a prolific Formula 1 career, went on to become a two-time champion in kart. Um, But you could argue that Alex Zanardi never had the opportunities to shine in Formula 1 because in the first stands of his career, he never got good equipment even though he was probably being groomed to be Michael Schumacher's teammate in Benetton in 94 until he jumped to a Lotus seat in 93 because it was a guaranteed drive and he couldn't pass it up. And then by the time he came back to Williams in 1999, the cars had changed so much from what he'd been used to driving. It's it's a sad situation because guys like Alexander Rossi can get spun about here because depending on how you want to spin it, you can say that he was a bust in F1. He was bobbing around between Caterham and Manor. He had a few drives to Manor, and he was better than Will Stevens when he was at Manor, comprehensively better than Will Stevens was. Then he goes to Indy 5, he goes to Indy next year and then wins the 500 uh, as a rookie. But then kind of omit how, you know, below average he was the rest of the year. Yeah, like, Connor Daly outpointed Alexander Rossi, if you take the 500 and take the double points rounds out of the equation, especially given that the, the, the final race in, Sono- in Sonoma, Daly had an engine failure. And if you take those two double point rounds out of the equation, Connor Daly outpointed Alexander Rossi. But of course, the F1 guys would spin that in the other way to say, well, how good is F1 if Rossi, who was only a bottom feeder in F1, can go to IndyCar and win the 500 on his debut? And of course, like, it's kind of while I was hoping that Alonso didn't do that great, because I know how smug the F1 guys would be. Like, how great is Alonso? Look at him. He's an amazing F1 driver. He's gone to IndyCar. He's destroyed the field. And it's like, well, how good is Formula 1 compared to IndyCar if Alonso can jump over there? Which is the point of what Lewis Hamilton's comments basically was when Alonso qualified fifth on his first attempt. Yeah, and it's, it's, oh, it's like everything that Kanan said about, you know, Formula One drivers, like, those kinds of Formula One fans are literally the people he despises the most. That don't take, that pretty much discounts, like, 20 entire years of his career. Yeah. 
Kanan is a 20-year veteran. Helio is like one of the best indie car drivers of all time. Free 500 wins. Tony Kanan has seen his one of his longtime friends, Rubens Barrichello, try and crack his way to IndyCar after 19 seasons in Formula One. Probably one of the greatest drivers to never win a world championship. So you would think, well, Rubens Barrichello is going to dominate IndyCar. <laughs> he is one and done and never won a race. Yeah. yeah. And there's no gap. I mean, look, we're seeing, you know, Max Chilton's having an okay time, but he's not, he's, he's not set IndyCar on fire since, since coming up through the light system. Though um, Max Chilton almost did what his world championship compatriot Nigel Mansell never did. Win the Indianapolis 500! Led more laps than anybody else. And, like, that, like, this is what I try to understand, like, just because an F1 driver goes to IndyCar and does well doesn't mean IndyCar is bad. It, maybe it means they're a great race driver and they can race in any series. Maybe that's a possibility. But yeah. unfortunately, many F1 drivers, many F1 fans just lack this sense of nuance where it's like F1 is the be-all and end-all. And if anyone doesn't do well in F1, they're absolutely a bust. And Hell, I, there, was, there was some of this at Le Mans when Nico Hulkenberg won, absolutely. where it was pretty much framed as Nico Hulkenberg drags his two uh, lowly amateur co-drivers to a victory on his Le Mans debut, even though Nick Tandy and Earl Bamber were actually quicker in the same car. I think, yeah. I think that's a problem. I think this is a problem about how Formula One is presented. Like, it's mainly presented as, you know, being in a bubble. That I mean, it's presented it as in a bubble, that it's the only thing that pretty much exists. Like, for the most part, if you watch a Sky F1 broadcast, they don't even mention GP3 or Formula 2. No, and they only mentioned IndyCar when Fernando was taking part. Like, like, like... Sky Sports F1 had an Indy 500 live blog. Would they have mentioned this if Fernando Alonso wasn't taking part? Fuck no. Um, so, you know, you look, you, you look, you read between the lines here. You're absolutely right. F1 is a bubble. It is an insular world where you have to fight or perceivably fight really, really hard to get in. And if you get in, you must be the best of the best. Like Martin Rundle says it like, oh, these are the 22 best racing drivers on the planet. No, they're not. They're just not. I'm sorry. They're not. Like they're just like no. 22 guys who just happen to be in the world championship at this moment in time. Yeah, like four or five, I'd say, are the best racing drivers on the planet. Yeah, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, Daniel Ricciardo. Sure, you know Fernando Alonso. Of course, you can throw them in. You can throw a couple other guys in there. Yeah, maybe they are the best drivers in the world. But that's not throughout the entire field. Like, how can you sit there and tell me that Formula One is this bubble where it's the best of the best? Yet you throw shade at Jody and Palmer every single fucking race weekend. It doesn't make any sense. You made a whipping boy out of Pastor Maldonado for years. We keep trying to get Marcus Ericsson out of the door, even though he was one of the most improved drivers in the field last year. Kevin Magnussen is another guy we're trying to drive out now for, for Giovinazzi. We had the best ever Formula 2 field the sport had ever seen last year. Six guys at one point were in, were, were in title contention. None of them got into F1 this year. Even though, you, mean, even though you we rag on say... Lance Stroll, we rag on Lance Stroll, <laughs> who has more European Formula Three titles than Mats Verstappen does. Yeah, fuck. And it's like, even though we could say like the the guys who didn't make it from GP GP two up into Formula One are better than some of the guys in Formula One. Give me Giovinazzi over Jolie and Palmer right here and now. Jesus Christ, I would. Like I would, I would, I would replace him in a heartbeat. I think Pierre Gasly is a damn fine driver that should have gotten in last year. 
Hell, I think Oliver Rowland could be in an F1 seat right now, and I think he'd be just fine. Um, like, Sasha on our Monaco hangout said this might be the weakest F1 field in years, and I don't necessarily agree with him on that one, but it is hard to stand out in the second half of the grid now, now more than ever, because F1's financial model is so screwed. Like, you might get one or two chances to shine all season long in a 21-race season or 20-race season because these cars are so bad compared to the front runners, it's hard to stand out. I mean, look at Esteban Ocon's season. He spent pretty much all year behind Sergio Perez, and that's going to be his problem now. He's probably got a teammate that's a little bit too good, despite being the part of a really good team. Pascal Verlein drives for Sauber. Say no more. Um, You know, Stoffel Van Dorn has looked bad on paper, but again, his McLaren's been terrible all season. So, like, it's it's a bad look, and I just don't believe that F1 is this bubble that it that it claims to be. Like, I, I, like people that follow IndyCar and know about how good guys like Scott Dixon, how good Will Power is, how good Simon Pagano is, Helio Castroneves, like. These are the same people that were getting all hyped about the possibility of Joseph Newgarden making the hash switch last year. What do you want to tell me then? Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's bonkers. Okay, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, it's it's still just a situation. Like, I still remember uh, back when Felipe Massa was initially going to retire from Williams and one of the, you know, rumors about people who could, you know replace Felipe Massa was... No, no. Before Felipe Massa went to Williams originally, one of the big rumors was that uh, GoDaddy was going to sponsor James Hinchcliffe to go to Williams. <laughs> that would have been amazing, but, but no, it never, again, never what I, happened. On the other side of the coin, I can't say uh, that IndyCar isn't you know, entirely innocent of trying to put themselves up on a pedestal. Because I still remember... Oh, no! Absolutely! For many a year, the the series tried to market its its finale as the IndyCar World Championship. Ooh. Yeah. 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 And in the 90s, the championship was called the CART World Series. The CART FedEx World Series. Yes, but that that was at a time where you could argue that the IndyCar slash CART field... Uh, top to bottom, had uh, a comparable talent to Formula One, if not better. Yeah, There's the a top, reason yeah, why Bernie Ecclestone was scared. Yeah, at the time, they did, which is completely true. Like, I still remember, I think, mid-2000s, and it came up again, where I think, like, the big, like, news magazine program here in the United States, 60 Minutes, had Michael Schumacher on, and they asked him, uh, like, it's, it's you know, it's very sit-down, one-on-one interview, no audience or anything, just a reporter and, you know, Michael Schumacher, and they asked him, would he ever come to IndyCar? And he said, no, for two reasons. Number one, it's too dangerous, and number two, it was a step down from Formula One, which again, mid-90s, like, early mid-90s, Michael Schumacher is peak. It was definitely made 100% sense. It was during, like, the dreg of the split where... IndyCar was legitimately not was legitimately stepped down from Formula One, but like mid nineties and now, you can debate that it's not a step down. That it's if it's a step down, it's like Formula One at one point seven, like one and a quarter. Like it's fairly <laughs> yeah. close. 
Yeah. Yes, you could you could argue that there are about a dozen drivers in the current IndyCar series field who should be an F1 on their talent alone or should have been a long time ago. And conversely, you could argue at the same point that there are a lot of guys stuck in midfield hell in Formula One right now who would be awesome in IndyCar. Nico Hulkenberg, Romain Grosjean, um, Sergio Perez, Carlos Sainz, Daniel Kvyat. I could throw a few more out there if it really came down to it. And that's just the full-time race drivers. We aren't even into the tested reserve category. No. Or the prospects in Formula 2. Like, nope. Like, there was a point in time where the IndyCar series probably wouldn't have existed. And I'm not, like, back in, like, the 50s and 60s where it was looking like you, we were going to see Americans full-time in Formula 1. The Indy 500 was going to be a full part of the full part of the world championship calendar and then by the time we reached the 1970s about a quarter of the field was going to be american teams and there would be four american rounds in the world championship including the indianapolis 500 mm-hmm. like we were close to having a pretty much unit like a truly world championship but you know the speedway was like screw that fam yeah we can get into that at another point in time, but I, I had to get well off my chest. Like, I'm sick and tired of F1 and, to a lesser degree, IndyCar basically getting into a dick-measuring contest over, <laughs> yeah. the, over the quality of its drivers. Like, IndyCar has five or six world-class drivers that would be top-tier players in Formula 1 and vice versa. And, like, that's okay. Like... It's like F1 is fundamentally flawed in how drivers get up their ranking system and how they get up their ladder. That alone should should make fans a little bit more open-minded to me about the quality of IndyCar's field, especially when quality drivers like Alex Rossi have been pushed out of that system to go to America. And on the other hand, yeah, I do agree. IndyCar does have a habit of basically rising to F1's bait a little bit too much, and they get defensive of their own over the state of the series. So... Yeah, it's it's not great, and it's not healthy for anybody. It's it just gets into like like I said, dick measuring contests. Yeah. So I don't want and, that. So and you pretty much end up in a situation where you kind of encourage people to pick a side and only watch one instead of both. And that's not good because you can watch both, and both series are fun in their own way, sort of mostly mainly car, but still. Um, so yeah, like guys, get a grip. Like enjoy your motorsport. It's okay. Like both guys can have quality guys in them. Like. Sorry, I would love Scott Dixon in a Mercedes one day. That'd be fun. Um, like a guy can dream. A guy can dream. But um, with that pretty much wrapped up, let's get into the news. Get into in the news, and I love that we had on our set list like who wants to race for Dale Coyne at Texas, and now who's we know. it gonna be? Who's it gonna be? Is yeah. it gonna be Bo Brandenburg, Jimmy Bly, Joe Tanto, Jeff Bosk, Walter Salas? You Andre say Joe Butler. Tanto? Oh my yeah, yeah. god! It's, it's, it's let's let's be real here. Cole let's, Trickle, Rowdy Burns, Cal no, no, Naughton Jr. Should be a discussion like. Currently, Ganassi isn't employing one of the best drivers ever to race in the Kart FedEx World Series. It can't be anyone but Bo, brah. I'm going to shoot both of you. <laughs> <laughs> you get. Um, but 
breaking news, we found this out literally about 15 minutes ago when we were recording. Like, Dale Coyne has revealed that driving the number 18 car and making his Verizon IndyCar series return, Viva la France, it's Tristian Vautier. Yeah, former Indy Lights champion, former <laughs> IndyCar series rookie of the year. Yep. Some of you out there might be wondering why we're talking about Tristan Vautier taking Sebastian Bourdais' seat in Texas. Wouldn't you think Esteban Gutierrez would be running there? But no, the IndyCar series is not allowing uh, Esteban Gutierrez to run at Texas Motor Speedway due to lack of oval experience. There's just simply not enough time for him to prepare himself to race at an oval. That there's, you know, procedure to this. He won't have time to test between Monday and Friday when the first practice session is. And IndyCar do, simply do not think that it is safe for Gutierrez to run at Texas Motor Speedway. Which, granted, there have been much worse drivers to be thrown right into the fire of top-level open-wheel oval racing. But it's glad to see that IndyCar has at least come to their senses and not allowed this stuff to happen. Who knows? Esteban Gutierrez might be fine, but he doesn't have enough time to get ready. So Vautier is a good pick. I think it's a very good pick. Go on, can you say? Yeah, Vautier is the safe, solid pick, especially at Texas. I personally, like, I I know another driver with experience at pretty much only ovals over her IndyCar career who raced for Dale Coyne. Pippa Man, but Pippa Man was, was unfortunately unavailable this weekend. Oh, man. Do we just ship out all that awesome pink merch? <laughs> it's a good reason. It's a good reason. Yeah. It's a noble cause. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, sadly, uh, it wasn't available. But, yeah, you know, good, good shout. Christian Fortier is a solid guy. He's had experience. Just don't run him next to Graham Rail, Otherwise, he's going to be very upset, uh, basically. And on top of that, another another, uh, another bit of official news. Harding Racing will be at Texas as well. Gabby Shevers will be back. And the confirmation, Harding, Ra- Harding Racing will be racing full-time in 2018. If they can get the sponsorship together, this could be really awesome. And it's great to see more teams coming in full-time into the fold in the IndyCar Series. Lord knows they need it. They do. We've already got Junkos Racing confirmed for next year. And now Gabby Chavez yes. will be joining Harding Racing as well. All the IndyCar news seems to be breaking today because in a post from Marshall Pruitt, unsurprisingly, IndyCar has chosen a manufacturer for next year's bodywork. Are they Italian? Yes, they are Italian. They have a factory in Indianapolis, and their name is Delara. No way! Yeah. Yes, and they have... Uh, I'm pretty sure I'll post in check. They, they already... IndyCar has posted, you know, uh, a mock-up of what Delara, you know, the Delara's blueprints for the design. It's pretty much what you expect it to look like. But, yep, post in chat for you guys. You guys, you guys listening will have probably already seen it or could go look at it on the IndyCar YouTube page. It's it's, it's beautiful. I love it. It looks it looks gorgeous. <laughs> I, 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 I especially love the uh, oval chassis with like the no rear wings. I love that configuration. I think oh, it's gorgeous. Goodness, it's beautiful. It's Man, stunning. I just, it's, it's everything I wanted out of a post-reunification IndyCar chassis. Who would have ever thought? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous thing. So yeah, all that breaking IndyCar news coming through. And big shout out to Zoe Hamilton for posting it in the Discord. Otherwise, you, may, you might have missed that one. So, uh, Zoe, if you're listening, you're a sweetheart. Well, well done, you. Uh, 
Thank you very much. A uh, new Motorsport Motorsport 101 correspondent, Zoe Hamilton. <laughs> but um, RJ, Le Mans had a test as well. Yeah, we had the first day of testing before the 24 hours of Le Mans. People are already accusing people of playing balance of performance politics in games by sandbagging in the test. But one thing was very clear. Toyota looked to be the favorites on paper. Uh, they set the fastest time of the test with a 318.1. 318? Yeah, for Jesus. reference. Yeah, for reference, uh, the lap record around Le Mans is a 317.4 set by Andre Lauderer in an Audi R18. Then there were a bunch of downforce cuts that were meant to slow the cars back down, and they're now up on the pace when Kabui Kobayashi set the 318.1 yeah. during Sunday testing. But here's the thing, because according to Daily Sports car correspondent Matt Fernandez, who was at the test, he said that uh, Kobayashi was lifting oh on a God. lot of places. He what? was lifting coming out of the last chicane. So there is reason to believe that that lap record could be tumbling yeah. this year. Yeah, it could be it's... tumbling and go like not be broken for a while because I know the the ACO, the organizers of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, they have a little, you know, guy like, you know, rule of thumb when it comes to making regulations that they don't want to see lap times consistently below uh, three minutes and 20 seconds. Goodness gracious. Um, also, I, I, I have to say 318, like that, that's something you would get in Gran Turismo 4. That is absolutely bonkers times. Like I've, yes. I, I watched Timo Bernhardt set a 318 in qualifying last year. I saw the onboard and he's hitting 210 miles an hour going down the mole sand and it is... It's ridiculous. Yeah, like, and, and find the Dunlap it. curves are like, I mean, like the curves are like the wildest ride of your life when you're going that fast. Yeah. Speaking of top speeds, um, this is also the first time that the new LMP2 cars will be at Le Mans. Um, some of them, the Dolara built LMP2 chassis in particular, hey, we're just talking about them. They were hitting 340 miles an hour down the top speeds. They were actually going faster in the speed traps than the LMP1 hybrids. Oh my huh? God. What? Yeah. 340 clicks. Are you look, you're talking just under 200, just over 210 miles an hour. That's bonkers. Yeah. yeah. We knew that these, uh, new LMP2 cars were going to be fast. Oh boy, they are going to be fast. They might also be a bit of a problem to deal with down the straightaways in traffic, but still, it's kind of amazing to see one of the two LMP2s actually beat the sole privateer LMP1 of the Baikals and ENSO CLM P101 with its Nismo GTR engine. Is that is that a segue there, RJ? Is that is that is that, is that a clever segue given one of that's um that's actually not as much of a clever segue so much. I just wanted to throw that out there at the like, yeah, these LMP2 cards are fast. Very, very fast. But um, speaking of tests, there was a big shock today when a certain former F1 driver came back and did a private test today for Renault. And um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Robert Kubica, ladies and gentlemen. Yes! Ah, Robert's uh, back! Ah, it's, o- it's only for a private test, but y'all, I I miss Robert Kubica in Formula One. I do. He's great. I- and he's had quite a bit of time just trying to find his place in the racing world ever since the injury. I thought he was going to do great rallying. That didn't turn out. 
I thought he was going to be at Lamar this year. That didn't turn out, but he had just a great time testing at the Valencia circuit, circuit with Carotomo. He did 115 laps. He didn't have any problems with the mobility in his shoulder. It seems all he was complaining about was just having understeer and a lack of grip. Other than that, the usual. He seemed like, yeah, you know, it was, he was doing all right. And apparently he was even quicker in the simulator than Sergey Sorotkin, Renault's <laughs> uh, number one test reserve driver. And with these results, people are already thinking, hmm, maybe since Renault might need a change of driver soon, it would be entirely yeah. improbable. But it's now not entirely out of the realm of possibility that Robert Kubica could come back to Formula One. Yeah, like the, not entirely. It's like it's 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 plausible. He's he's not too old. He's he's still thirty two years old. Surprisingly, it seems like he's been out yeah, of the forever. And I mean, uh, when when you see like pictures of Rob Kubica in a short sleeve shirt, you can like you can tell that his arm is severely damaged. Like that's the that's the only like oh that's the only apprehensive I have to him being in a Formula One car. That, that was my big question is if he has a big wreck, what happens to his arm? And that's the, that's the one question mark I've got going into this is that like, could he, could he still use his arm again if he suffered a, like, say something like a Fernando Alonso in Australia sort of accidents where, you know, high speed car gets flung into a gravel trap. Obviously you wouldn't wish that not in a month of Sundays, but you see what I mean? Like if he had a big accident, like what could happen? Like, because like That's looking, what worries looking me. at his arm, you could tell that muscles in his arm have deteriorated, deteriorated through damage. Like it couldn't be yeah. rehabilitated. That's awful. That's that's awful. Yeah. And yeah, he's 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 probably never going to have full strength in that arm again, and that's awful. Um, especially given that these cars are more physical than the 2012 car he was driving at said test where the G-forces are so much higher, the quartering speeds are higher. Like, how would he... Like, I'd like I'd like to see him based on a 2016 car by comparison because we've, we've seen it. These cars are a lot more physically demanding this year. You know, every driver's been hitting the gym harder this year because, again, the G-forces are so much higher, the strength in your neck is going to be that much more strained. Um, so when you add all that in, like, how's that going to go for him if he has a big accident? How can he handle a 2017 car... Well, like, uh, part part of me, like part of me, like I know Formula Two, the the organizers have said they don't really want to change the the driver, you know, the driver rules, even though they're getting a new car next year. Like, if Renault wanted to be serious about their driver academy, have Robert Kubica as a permanent Formula Two driver, just so they have you know someone extremely skilled and experienced for them to not only teach their young drivers, but to have you know a benchmark to see how good their young guys would like to have him as a career two driver. Yeah. That's a great shout. That is a great shout. That could be very helpful indeed. But, uh, of continued success for Robert. Wish him the best. Again, I'd love to see him try and find the way back in, but that I'm skeptical and for good reason. And, um, yeah, again, I hope, I hope that he find that he, he finds a path that works for him. And yeah, geez, uh, Hope it works out, but uh, yeah, I, I think we're, I think we've got to be a little bit careful on before we start jumping on the. Oh yeah, Robert to replace Jody and Palmer takes. I think <laughs> like let's ease up a little bit. Like there's there's a long way to go before we get to that stage because that is a different ball game entirely. Um, 
So, uh, RJ, tell us about your, your, your Taylor brothers. <laughs> yep. Um, IMSA happened in Detroit while the Indy cars were going on. Um, Ricky and Jordan Taylor in the Wayne Taylor Racing Cadillac won again. Surprise, surprise. No the, the, the Cadillac, that Cadillac is still really good. And Wayne Taylor Racing are chewing up and spitting out Action Express's both their cars. Yeah. It, Who would it, have it, ever thought? It doesn't matter how much BOP there is. Oh my God. Yeah. The and they started at, they started at the back of their field. It started at the back of the prototype class after crashing and qualifying. Nope, didn't matter. They still won because they're at the top of the game right now. Yeah, they're just too good and they're too yeah. likable. What is wrong with them? They're, they're, they're everything wrong. They're giving motorsport a bad name, gang. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible name. Terrible name. But That's so, fine. But yeah, we also had some other cool stuff that happened, like Catherine Legg and Oswaldo Negri Jr. One in an Acura NSX GT3, giving that car its first win. Woo! And Christina Nielsen in the Scuderia Corsa Ferrari finished second behind them. So, yeah, the two leading ladies in IMSA pick up a one-two finish in GT Daytona, which is really, really awesome to see. Fantastic. And great for Catherine as well. Because, yeah, we um, love Catherine on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, so we love Catherine, really, so that's awesome. <laughs> that was really awesome to listen to in the gym, which I'm still sore from. Because your boy, your boy hasn't worked out in a long time. <laughs> Bring some mouthwash in next time. That'll help. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so congratulations to, to, to Catherine Leg again. She's a she's a she's a fan favorite. We love her on this podcast. So delighted to see her win in the GTD class. Awesome for her and Christine Nielsen as well. That's awesome. Um, over to NASCAR, King. Uh, yes, over to NASCAR. I'm pretty sure RJ knows more about this news story than I do, even though I'm yeah. very excited when I saw this pop up, because I did not yeah. know. <laughs> yes, so, um, so in the NASCAR Cup Series, we have really a, a groundbreaking debut, as Daryl Wallace Jr., nicknamed Bubba, will become only the fourth African-American driver to start a NASCAR Cup Series race when he wow. takes over the number 43 Richard Petty Motorsports Ford. This is one of the most iconic cars, and Daryl Wallace Jr. is making his Cup Series debut in it, substituting for the injured Eric Almirola at this weekend's upcoming race at, I want to say it is, Pocono. I want to say the next it's race Pocono. is Pocono. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, the Pennsylvania is, 400. Yeah, this is, um, this is obviously really, really awesome. Daryl Wallace Jr. has been uh, one of the most highly touted prospects in the NASCAR ranks for some time. He's won races in the lower series. He's had a pretty good run in the Xfinity series. Of course, the catch is now his uh, second-tier team is out of money, and they've shut their doors temporarily. So this is kind of how they're giving Daryl Wallace some time to drive in place of that by having him drive as an injury substitute driver. But I'm really excited to see how Daryl Wallace gets along. You gotta understand that, you know, obviously ever since Wendell Scott, there has not been a prolific African American driver who's had success at this top level. And Daryl Wallace Jr. has been at times every bit as good as the likes of Chase Elliott, Eric Jones, Daniel Suarez, um, Kyle Larson and the like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would compare him. I would say he's, he's the Bailey of this youth movement. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Oh, let's <laughs> oh, not talk about last weekend, but yeah, like he's the, he's the, he's the underappreciated guy who's probably taken a bit longer than he should to get the chance at the top level. 
And doing it in the 43 car, the one that Richard Petty made famous. Yeah, the one that, that Richard that Petty still did to, su- to seven championships. Yep. Well, good luck to Bubba. Wish him the best. That is awesome. Again, yet NASCAR as a series is seemingly the most progressive for people of color and, and, and whatnot when it comes to driving. Obviously, we talked a lot about Daniel Suarez on previously on the show. So, yeah, it's kind of weird that NASCAR is so progressive with its drivers and yet... Guess who runs it? Yeah, less said on that, the better. Um, into the mailbag. Well, 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 and... well, oh, one, one last news. Quite, like, we talked about it before the show, but it didn't end up on the set list. Um, we could see a possible return of the Portuguese Grand Prix. Oh, see, see I was getting to this, because one of the questions in the mailbag was from Josh Chatzel of the Motocast podcast. Hi, guys. Um, they're, they're friends of ours. We're friends here. We're all friends here. Um, and they said, in light of the Portugal rumors, which other classic tracks would you like to see return, or should we just focus on new venues? But yes, it was going to be a nice segue into talking about the fact that, that uh, Portugal went back on the F1 calendar, King. <laughs> yes, Portugal want back in. I've... I think a large part of the movement to 21 plus races is is making it feasible to have 21 plus races and the most feasible way is by having most of them in Europe because it is easier to do back-to-backs in Europe because it's easier to truck around stuff than to fly around stuff. Just look at the IndyCar guys. They're racing five back-to-back weekends basically. It's nuts. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we're talking about Portimao here coming back we're not talking about Mr. Real, or sad, sad news for you MotoGP fans out there. But um, we are talking about Portimao. Um, you may have seen it on the World Superbike calendar um, with um, Sykes and, and Ray and whatnot over there. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a great track. Like, I've, I've, met, I've driven around it in video game form, seen it on TV. It's a great track. It can hold 100,000 people, so it would be dirt cheap to bring fans in. Um, yeah, it's... Just, get, just get Cristiano Ronaldo to bankroll the whole thing. Yeah, sure. Why not? I, 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 that's loose change for him. I mean, geez, yeah, just, just, yeah, just find somebody on the back of the sofa, you know, in between all the um, girlfriends and fancy cars. I'm guessing he'll, 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 find, he'll find a few million in the back, right? He'll, he'll be able to fund that shit, no problem. But um, yeah, like I think for those who don't know what Portimao is, if you've if, if, if ever actually watched the um, first episode of the Grand Tour earlier this year. Yeah, that one, uh, basically. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I, again, I, I'd love to see it back on the calendar. I don't know if it will actually happen or not, but I'm, if, if Liberty is serious about going for 25 races, then that probably is the way to go about it. And I think, yeah, I, if the new places are in Europe, then sure, why not have? Why, why not be able to make it work? I'm not sure if they can bring back any classics. Bring back him a lot. Bring back him a lot. But um, no, in all seriousness, I don't know. Like King, how do you feel about it? Would you rather them go back to um, old places? Or would you rather like new venues on the calendar instead? I would try to get as many existing venues as possible because no one wants to pay the amount of money it costs to build a you know state of the art Formula One facility. It's easier to renovate you know existing facilities. Most likely, sorry, Dre, we won't see Imola because Imola is ooh, Imola. It's gonna take a lot of yeah. Money. It's gonna take a lot of money to get that place back up the standard, but we could see. But know, they have a world superbike round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the facilities are much better than they were the last time it was on the calendar. They just need to get more stands up, and that's also Paul Ricard's problem, which they're working on right now. I would love to see a finished Grand Prix at the Kimi Ring, which is being built. 
I don't know. This is a legit track. We are not making a joke. There's a track in Finland called the Kimi Ring. Purely coincidence, may we add. Yes. Uh, Sort of. Yes, and like, probably, like, if Italy were to get a second race, I would really like to see it with Jello. Ooh. F1 drivers love Mugello. I do know that for a fact. Like Mark Webber adores the place. He said, "Chill, like, I'd rather drive a thousand laps of Mugello than ten laps of Abu Dhabi," which is one of his famous quotes. Um, yeah, I'd be here for Mugello. That'd be sick. Um, so yeah, I'm here for it. Um, Even though they I'm, also I'm, outline, I'm, they like other places, they outline that they want to, you know, expand in is the Americas, North and South America. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Do do Indianapolis again. I'd be down for that. Um, go back sure. to Argentina. <laughs> yeah, go back to Argentina, sure. please. That, that works, that works. So yeah, all, all of that good stuff. Um, Charles Reginball asks, if I go to the Canadian Grand Prix Open House again this year, what do you want me to ask the drivers? <laughs> yeah, ooh, that is like... Get Sebastian to do an open intro for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do that, and you get you you get guest privileges anytime, Charles. There's your chat. It's more like, ooh, what what question can we ask? Because they're the they're the obvious questions. What do you think of IndyCar? But that's kind of loaded topic at the moment. <laughs> Are you a fan um, of IndyCar? Ask everybody. Ask everybody in attendance if they'd rather fight one hundred duck sized elephants or one elephant sized duck. Most of one one of the hard-hitting questions here on the, on, on the podcast. True journalism, so to speak. <laughs> um, I'd like them to ask, boxes or briefs? So it's an important question. Important boxes question. or briefs? Important question. Okay, okay. Here's a more serious question, considering that this is the 50th year Canada is on the World Championship calendar and the 150th anniversary of Canada itself. Nerd! Do, do, do you sorry, eat butter on your pancakes? That is the real question we need to ask. If you if you had a superpower, what would it be? It's like we we all know maple syrup is the default. Do you put butter on your pancakes? Yes or no? I personally do. So, Elizabeth, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. I like I just do. Like I like a, a bit of extra moisture in my pancake. Um, On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you regret making that Shea Weber trade for P.K. Subban, Montreal? <laughs> I think that's like, that's a Botas only question. <laughs> He's a big hooky guy, apparently. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thanks, Charles, for that one. Uh, report back with your findings. Um, Len Morrison asks, do you want there to be a full IndyCar game, brackets, not like the Forza DLC? Well, it's funny yes. you say that, Len, because Project Cars 2 is the official game of the IndyCar series now. Uh, kind of. Kind of. Like, they don't have... <sighs> they have most of the tracks, not all the tracks. But, like, again, I I like seeing it in the situation it is in Project Cars, because you could take IndyCars to venues you wouldn't see IndyCars at. IndyCars at Monza. IndyCars at Monza. <laughs> Let's. And it's, um, been, it's been a while since we've had an official IndyCar game. It would be nice. Yeah. though. it would be nice. Yeah, it, it would be nice. And yeah, like I'm annoyed now because it means I probably have to buy Project Cars Two now, which is really annoying. But like IndyCar series, okay, I'm in. Yeah, I, like, I, I, I can yeah, handle this. Not, not. 
We are not sponsored by um, Project Cars 2 in any way, but in Project Cars nope. 2, they'll have the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, including the iconic 3 by 3 starts. Lit! Oh, <laughs> wow, they're actually taking time to put in all the details. Who would yeah, have ever yeah, guessed? They have, they have the same qualifying system, everything. It's just like the 500, as it would be. Unlike other games, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Forza... <laughs> you half ass baits game series, you. Um, no, we love you, Forza. We love you yes, very yes. much. And they, they also no. have the, the various arrow kits, so you can, you know. Wow. Yeah. It's like a catch all racing simulator can actually take the time and effort to put in all these details about the different racing series they feature. Who would have ever guessed? King, <laughs> M- Motorsport 101 Indy 500. We've got to make this happen. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. That like that is the plan. We're all buying Project Cars Two, everybody. Limited edition. We, we we're all dropping the four hundred quid, y'all. Uh, like, <laughs> especially you, King. How about no? I'll, I'll just I'll stick with the basic coffee. Catch me outside, bro. We'll <laughs> fight over this. Uh, no. Um, uh, Zoe Zoe Hamilton asks. When will Dre stop picking on me? Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I I admit nothing. I do not mock Zoe that much. Um, <laughs> I wonder about being a Marco Andretti fan. Somebody's got to do it. It gives you way too much material. Uh, <laughs> whoa, 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 yo! Your internet gives us way too much material. Shut up. <laughs> I, Shut I up. think I think Zoe. The answer is when we stop picking on Dre, which is probably never. Do we, do we tell them about how this episode started, Dre? <laughs> Go on, then. <laughs> well, uh, we record this show on Discord, FYI, and um, Trey was looking for programs to close to, you know, make sure there wasn't a big load on his computer or his internet. And just before we're about to start recording, I just hear we just hear Trey say, um, "Let me shut down Discord," and then, and then we just hear him just disappear. <laughs> I I I I cannot refute or confirm these allegations. Um, yeah, oh, fuck. It was it was not my finest hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was an idiot. There's no way to describe it. I was an idiot. It's it's one of those things. Fine, Zoe. I hope you're clapping listening to this. That was not supposed to make it in, but I hope you're happy now. Um, brackets. Like uh, the brackets for Fedevil is a serious question. If if it's not announced by the time we record, who should be in the second Dale coin car? Well, now we know. So Tristan yeah. Votier, Tristan Tristan Votier. You're not Chris Cook. Don't give up the day job, King. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sean, you have a bunch of fun questions. Um, the first one was, do you record the podcast in one take? And that's a little fun behind the scenes question. The answer is, ninety five percent of the time, yes, we do. Um, we do sit down on the Discord server for about three hours at a time, and about two of them is spent recording the show. So, yeah, like, <laughs> like there are rare exceptions. Like last week, we had with RJ appeared via Ouija board, and um, we, we 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 tapped the letters out on paper, and he started speaking. Um, he did a bunch of pre-recorded segments with his takes on the 500 with Monaco and his um segment on PK Saban. That was not live. That was digitally inserted uh, via the power of editing. Um, but 95% of the time, when there's a show like that, um, we it's all in one sitting. 
for the most part. So there, now, now you know. Um, you also asked, what are the weirdest and most surprising things that have happened in the past 10 years that your 2007 self wouldn't believe? Um, um, a, a 16-year-old making his F1 debut? Wouldn't, yeah, that, that, yeah. that, was, that was a thing. Uh, Dre meeting Bernie Ecclestone, then Bernie Ecclestone retiring or being forced out. Not because of Dre. Those just <laughs> two things just happened. Oh, just, 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 just by coincidence. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Why not? Just chuck that in there. Why don't you? Get. Uh, <laughs> um, anything from you, RJ, on that one? Um, I would go from being just a devout IndyCar hater to being just like, yeah, IndyCar, awesome, in just a span of about less than 10 years. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty nuts when you think about it. Yeah, I, I, it still, it still pains me. Like, I still can't. I, anytime I see him on screen, I have to reflexively say "fuck you, Tony George." <laughs> but also, thank, thank you for the safer barrier. No, thank you for 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 starting up the split and building up a racing league just so you can delay the inevitable of Tony Stewart going to NASCAR and a set of single seaters. Oh, jeez. But still remember, Tony Tony George, uh, do, do, do I say your stepson is, like, below average? Is the stepson below average? Ooh. No, his stepson's <laughs> so much better now than he once was. What oh, the that heck? is true, that is true. Ed, Ed Carpenter... Carpenter. Ed Carpenter went from being garbage in a weaker league to actually being pretty decent in a stronger league. Look at that, turns out. Um, is Connor Daly the Jolian Palmer of IndyCar? Ooh, no, that's me. The other mean. stepson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, that's that mean, Shorty. Um, nah, nah, Connor Daly. Connor Daly's a decent driver who gets given, I mean, he ends up in terrible situations because of his team. Either be through poor strategy or um, just bad equipment. But he does have a very cool fan base. Um, that always helps. Another question from Shawnee. When Helio retires, who will replace him? That's a good question. Oh, gosh. Um, I know that Alexander Rossi was in discussions at Penske a while back, but he's on a multi-year deal now. Yeah. Yeah, we all thought that Alexander Rossi to Penske would have been crazy. Looking at his results this year, um, yeah, it might not be as as crazy as it sounds in the near future. If anybody could break that deal, it'll be Roger, it'll be Roger Penske. Like, yeah, let's be real like, here. That's the thing. Roger Penske rarely signs lights, guys. If he's signing somebody, it's going to be a big name. Hmm. Watch it. Watch it be um, disillusioned with Formula One and seeking a new challenge. Matt's no. Like, it <laughs> wouldn't be unheard of because, um, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be unheard of. <laughs> Maybe, even he's got a decent sponsor. If he if he if he gets up a little bit further up the board, would James Hinchcliffe be unthinkable? No, not unthinkable at all. Also, remember that his hero, the late Greg Moore, was also supposed to drive for Penske in two thousand, just before his untimely death. It's true. No. He's got he's no. got a big, he's got a big name sponsor. Still only thirty years. You know, he's in the top ten this season. He's had a he's had a. Is probably his strongest year at SPM to date. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like too much of a homer when I make this suggestion, but when you think again, like he does, like 
Pensky doesn't bat for youth very often, and he doesn't bat for light guys very often. So you're looking for an, an established player, and there's not I mean, many of them there out was, there. There was people. that time we signed that young Canadian kill, kid, that, that thrill from West Hill, Paul Tracy. Hmm. <laughs> should we leave that one there? <laughs> uh, I think we I think we should, but um, you know, just throw it out there. You heard it here first, guys. You heard it here first. Uh, oh my yeah. god the the always bad Scott G uh, account is wonderful. It's <laughs> it, it's about to be redundant because we might have seen ESPN and ABC's last IndyCar race ever, but it's just like. In response to the Trista Vogier news, the always bad Scott counts and tweets, this time I what we call we would call surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and other and other wonderful Scott Goodyear isms. Lovely. Um Brian Glennon asks, Do you think any motorsports would retire numbers? Now I know he's saying this in response to Nikki Hayden. Obviously, it's passing last week. There's rumors going around that they might retire the 69 in MotoGP as a result. I know Loris Caparossi had his 65 retired last year when he was inducted into the MotoGP Hall of Fame, as was, there's one other number that's been retired, is 58, obviously, for Marco Simoncelli. And other series have different philosophies on this. Obviously, F1 has now blocked out the 17 because of Jules Bianchi. Um, So... How do you guys feel about it? Because I know the debate I've heard from guys in MotoGP is that they would they would want somebody with the balls to say, yeah, give me the 46, basically, see if I can carry on in Rusty's legacy or something like that. Mm. Um, so how do you guys feel about it? Oh, this is... I have a feeling that, especially in motorsports, numbers should never be retired because there's a limited amount. It's not like team sports where each where each team has one of each number. There's like right. only one of this number exists, period. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. That's a, that's you've, a good got, point. you've got to understand that like in mainstream American sports, there have only been two instances where a number is retired throughout all the sports, and that was because they were athletes that transcended their game. They are the number 42 for Jack Robinson in Major League Baseball, obviously recognized as the first player to break the color barrier, have a successful career in the major leagues in the modern era. The other is Wayne Gretzky's number 99 in the national hockey league, because he took every record, threw it away, crumpled it, threw it right in the fricking garbage and reset the record books well beyond the reach out of everybody else. And he was also the most popular player for years and years and years. Those are the only two times in North American mainstream sports. Now, interestingly enough, it's it's come up to where we've always thought that like the number three was retired after Dale Earnhardt passed. Um, it actually wasn't. It was retired by his team, though there was always a movement that it should have been retired from the sport because to some yeah. people, nobody could ever live Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s legacy. Turns out Austin Dillon actually did a pretty good job of winning the Coca-Cola 600 last weekend. Hmm. Who would have known? Um IndyCar has retired numbers from the whole series. I know that they retired AJ Foyt's number 14 for a while, then brought it back into circulation. Then they retired Greg Moore's number 99 after he died. Um, that number eventually went back into circulation, though not in the hands of drivers I think are worthy. Interestingly enough, NASCAR only has one retired number, and it's not in one of the national series. It's in one of their regional championships. It's Richie Evans' number 61. And it's retired from the modified championships, and that's the only number they've retired from like the entire series. 
IMSA had a retired number, uh, number 14 for the late champion Al Holbert, which has since been brought back for Letsis. Um, it's strange. I think it's tough. I, I don't know how I feel about retiring numbers in motorsport. I feel like it should really only be reserved for like athletes who are taken away way too soon or athletes who transcend their sport, you know, the way it used to be in American sports before suddenly every prolific athlete had their number retired by their team. Just shout out to, shout out oh, to the Yankees. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, if, I would probably change like my my favorite numbering system is probably Supercross the numbering system where uh, you have to basically earn your way towards getting a number you want. So pretty much, um, for the most part, uh, for the most part, if you're a rookie, uh, you pick your numbers in championship order. So of the numbers. Available. We'll get to the other numbers later. The numbers available, you get to pick based on championship order of the numbers left. After that, uh, I believe if you get top, if you just finish in the top twenty in points, uh, you earn the right to have a number for the rest of your career. All right, I see. But you can pick any number between, uh, I believe. Uh, 99 and 10. You can't pick a single digit number. The single digit numbers are reserved for champions. So for, the reigning ah. champion, the reigning champion gets number one, and then all the former champions pick between you know two and nine. Obviously, we're not going to have more than uh, eight former champions in the field. So you know, it's never an issue about finding a single digit number. Right. I see. That's that's interesting. So here's a question for you. Um, I'm going to spin this a little bit on Glenn's take. If Rossi retired tomorrow, would you, as, as, as sport boss, retire to 46? Mm. Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't. I disagree. I believe that there should be, like, uh, a temporary if, retirement, like a five-year retirement. If he wants it retired, I mean, Loris Caparossi wasn't even a Premier Class champion. Rossi no. shoot up and spit out the record books in the modern era. He's Valentino legit. Rossi is MotoGP at this point. Pretty mm. much, whether 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 or not you're a big fan of it, he is pretty much the the yeah. face that runs the place. I would say, I would say personally, I would say no. But based off of what MotoGP has done before, they're probably going to do it. Yeah, if, they, if they're retiring Caparossi '65, like I know for a fact, Nicolo Bulaga when he was in the CEV Championship ran the '46. And I would love to see if, if Bulega ever ends up becoming half the talent we think he is. I would love to see him have the balls to take Valentino Rossi's forty-six if he moved up, <laughs> if he moved up in the classes after Rossi retires, which will probably be at the end of next season. Um, I'd love to see him have the gonads to try it um, and see how that goes down. But um, he runs the number eight right now in Moto Three for the Sky VR forty-six Academy. But yeah, obviously. In a in a post Rossi world, who knows what's going to happen? But uh, me personally, I'm kind of indifferent. I don't really mind. Like I get the appeal on both sides. I get that you want to make a number historic, but in motorsport, like I think uh, somebody else might want the honor of trying to take somebody else's number and making it their own. Um, as I can, can use Bulaga as the example just there. Um, and it, could, it could apply to other guys like Valentino, maybe Mar- Marquez. Somebody might want the ninety-three. Who knows? Yeah, like um, in Supercross, someone has 
like, it's not even recently since Ryan Villapoto left the series, but someone, you know, decided to pick uh, the most recent champion, decided to pick the number two as their number, which is Ryan Villapoto's number, and before Villapoto was Jeremy McGrath's number. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, me personally, I don't really mind either way. I've not got I've not got a strong opinion one way or the other. Um so, to, to yeah, me I, personally personally I enjoy that numbers have lineages and when you retire a number and take it out of circulation, okay. like it, it kind of it it leaves that number's history with only a single person. So I get what you're saying. Um last question from Ray Ops, so again it was we kinda mentioned earlier. Some F1 fans have a superiority complex. Example, defending Hamilton for bashing IndyCar without any knowledge. Brackets, yes. We kind of talked about it earlier in the show, but I did, I did, I did want to give obviously give Ray due for answering a question about that. I thought he obviously didn't know that it was going to be on the show. But yeah, short answer, yes. Um, long answer, fuck yes. Um, basically, um, yeah. Go, go back about half an hour to find that segment on that one. Any other news to bring up before I end the show? No? Uh, no, I believe we have covered everything that is currently available. Excellent. Let's wrap this up. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Basically, you can find us one more time. We're on YouTube and Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We're on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, at Harrison101HD, at RJ O'Connell, at Ryan Eric King with two Ks. And if you'd like to back us on Patreon, we're on Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Remember, early access is just $3 a month instead of 5 for the month of June. Uh, obviously, check out Bike Live episode. It's going to be, I think it's going to be 16. Yep, 16 next. That'll be out later this week as well. All of me, Lewis Sudderby, and hey, maybe we'll get Rebecca James. Who knows at this point? But um, it'll, be, it'll be guaranteed at least me and Sudderby talking about one of the great MotoGP weekends of our time an unbelievable weekend talking about andrea vizioso winning on the ducati in italy dreams do come true ladies and gentlemen um dovi's only i think it's actually dovi's first ever drive moto gp win as well that's kind of nuts um we're talking about that we're talking about matteo Pasini. Uh, winning in in Italy, and obviously talking about um, that absolutely ridiculous Moto3 race on every level. One of, for me, one of the best races I've ever seen in anything ever. And yeah, an Italian clean sweep across the board for the first time in nine years in MotoGP. All of that, me and Lewis are to be out later this week as well. So that'll do it. So for me, Andrea Harrison. Ryan King and RJ O'Connell, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Later, y'all. Bye. So, Dre, I, I think it's going to be close, but I'm going to have to see when Sotheby's done editing this, but I think he should fire up the stove and get that flat cap ready. Oh, no. We went over, we went over two hours, didn't we? It's two two hours and eight minutes on the on recording, so I don't know when Sotheby cuts out the intro and other things. It might be under two, but I think you're going to have to eat that flat cap, brah.
Shit. <laughs> <laughs>